0: Hey, this is Ken Art of Wake Up Carolina, because we're in such demand, we decided to do a podcast. Well, actually, it's like an archive of a previously broadcast show on the radio. So it's not a podcast. Well, it is presented as a podcast. So invite people to join us for whatever it is you just said they can join us for. That's right. Enjoy, and it
1: starts now
0: good morning welcome to wake up carolina tuesday morning march 29 843 is our number good morning royal rev of radio good morning anything i said yesterday i didn't really mean as you interpret it to sound okay. I mean, i'm gonna be like biden <laughs> i mean I, you know i i admit i'm in cognitive decline i forget a lot more than i ever have um my memory is not as good as it formerly uh previously was i've always had a pretty decent memory maybe that's why i did okay and in the world of politics, I've always been able to um, retain a certain amount of information, um, worthless, useless, but I'm able to retain it at a uh, at a pretty good high, uh, pretty good clear You
2: you have amazed me before. What do you mean? <laughs> well, you're talking about your memory, and, it's and about that's
0: kind of thing as you've ever said to me well, before.
2: Well, and and what I mean is, it makes me think when you're talking about your memory, there have been times when I've heard you recount a baseball game from 30 years ago. You knew who was on first. You know what was on second. Yeah. And, uh, and we're able to say, you know, this is who, he, here's the pitcher, and here's how he hit it, and mm-hmm. here's how it was fielded, and you can remember that stuff.
0: And the report card was loaded with Cs, <laughs> not a B inside. I made right. an A and P normally, and uh, any class a coach taught, I normally did, you know, pretty well there. Hey, I do have breaking news. You ready? Mm. Mike Tyson has been named host of next year's Oscars. <laughs> we'll just leave it there. Nothing <laughs> right. to be added to that. Mike That's Tyson. All you need to say. Mike Tyson has officially been named a host of next year's Oscars. We'll see how that works out if somebody wants to, quote-unquote, break bad and take matters into their own hands. but if you had Mike Tyson? I mean, go slap Mike Tyson if you'd like. Uh, <laughs> wonder how that would work out.
2: Dinner hope he doesn't hear you making <laughs> fun of him like yeah, well, that.
0: I mean, everybody does. He kind of <laughs> makes fun of himself. Um, yeah. Um, if Mike Tyson were hosting the Oscars, it would have been far more eventful. Uh, well, no, it wouldn't have. Because uh, Will Smith would have stayed in his, um, in his seat and uttered some musings of Scientology under under his breath.
2: Well, Dwayne the Rock Johnson was in the audience. You notice Will Smith didn't go slap yeah. him.
0: I would rather slap Will Johnson or Dwayne Johnson. Will Johnson was his father, I think. I would rather sla- slap the Rock than I had Mike Tyson. <laughs> I mean, the, the Rock play fights. <laughs> Mike Tyson real fights. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, let's <laughs> settle this once and for all and allow mike tyson to be uh and all this time i thought alopecia was singing with no music
2: <sighs> mm. it's a medical condition Acapella. right yeah
0: it's a medical condition <laughs> what i said <an> amphibious ambidextrous <laughs> right. sort of sort of thing yeah. uh you know <laughs> I had a buddy of mine, the, the greatest misuse of a word ever i've told this story on the only the year before i had a buddy of mine who's um i mean we were all having kids at about the same time I mean, we're kids having kids. I'm 25, he's 24. We're having babies everywhere. I mean, the guys I went to, to school with, I mean, we all got married. Country folk get married early, and we start families much earlier uh, than people on average. So I, um, I got married, and, uh, and we immediately, not immediately, we within a year and a half, maybe two years, had a kid, uh, and then another and another. Uh, but anyway, uh, my buddies were having kids as well. So one of my buddies were at the softball field, and we had partaking um, and we're having you know some libations and um it was one of those weekends that, that I would argue I was kind of sort of married you know I, I've said this before uh, my wife and I are coming upon our 35th wedding anniversary I'm actually approaching the 33rd year of marriage she has it officially I guess the the clerk of court has us um has us uh, as a 35 year couple but but my buddy's uh, having a kid I've already had my kid. So he's having a kid and we're all experts on having kids because we've had kids now and we know everything. I mean, once we experience it one time, mm. we're renowned experts on whatever subject or matter oh, it may yeah. be we're discussing. So he comes to the softball field and he says, I mean, his wife is about to just explode. And then we're I say, hey, when is this thing gonna happen, man? He said, um, they're going to seduce her <laughs> Wednesday. And I said, do what? He said, yeah, the doctor's going to seduce her Wednesday. <laughs> I said, hey man, I have a fairly limited vocabulary. But I think you got the wrong word there. I think induce. I mean, I've done this. You know what I mean? I've got a kid to show that I am somewhat of an expert on the terminology and language of a, a baby delivering. And I think the word you're looking for is induce. No. Wednesday, she's going to be seduced at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I said, hey, okay. I mean, the doctor's going to seduce your wife. um Good luck with that. We'll see how that, uh, how that works in itself out. So, yeah. Um... Alopecia is a medical condition, right, mm-hmm. that that someone loses their hair when they're diagnosed. And from what I'm gathering now, uh, the, the 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 research I did yesterday in the name of Wake Up Carolina and better providing you an accounting of what it is out there going on in the world, that Chris Rock made a joke about, that's like the, uh, the movie Rain Man, Charlie Babbitt made a joke. Chris Rock made a joke, but he kept saying Charlie Babbitt made a joke. Charlie <laughs> Babbitt made a joke. Uh, remember the autistic savant in Rain Man? Dustin Hoffman, if I'm not mistaken, played uh, Rain Man. So um, Chris, Chris Rock, who is a comedian, Chris Rock, who is a, a pretty edgy comedian. Yeah, right? I mean he's, he's really he's uh, great. Though. I mean he's, he's one a, of the best in the world. He's a funny guy. I mean he's a real funny guy. Um, I've kind of got a Chris Rock story. <laughs> <laughs> do you? I do. I really do. Of course I, you do. <laughs> I've kind of got a weird story, <laughs> but I've kind of got a Chris Rock story. So, um, so we go to the medical university, and um, remember, I told y'all the travails of my kid's leg. You know, we we had a um, we had a situation that we couldn't address. In other words, something happened. He went to New York and had some surgeries. Went to USC and had some surgeries. I mean, we're chasing doctors around the countryside trying to figure out um, exactly what needs to be done or not. Anyway, we end up at MUSC on a weekend. Um, something had happened. I don't. It might have been planned, might not have been planned, but we're there. And um, and because I, I was in in politics, I'd got put on the board of visitors at the medical university. So I'm a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, I could have gotten a license plate. I didn't, but I could have. They said board of visitors at the medical university of South Carolina. It's kind of funny these places I've ended up. I mean, it really is. But I mean, it's kind of humorous. I ended up on the MUSC board of visitors, <laughs> and I know nothing. I mean, I do know the difference in seduce and induce, right. but that's about it. That may be in the question they asked me. Hey, do you know the difference in seduce and induce? Because one of your buddies don't. Yeah, I do. Um, seduce means this, and induce means that. Okay, you're on. You're good. Come on in. You're now the, uh, on the Medical University of South Carolina's Board of <laughs> Visitors, um, giving somewhat of recommendations to how we run this monstrosity of a hospital. So anyway, we're, we're, we check in. We go there, and... We get this big basket. Now, once again, I'm in politics, and MUSC depends on governmental funding to keep their boat afloat and and, uh, and skid greased. So I'm in politics, uh, and I'm on the MUSC Board of Visitors, and we get this big basket of flowers. Uh, like a couple of hours after we get there. <laughs> and and all of a sudden, um, I don't want to call his name, but the, the CEO of the hospital comes by. And he says, hey, just want to make sure everything's okay. Well, everything's fine. I mean, I know seduce and induce. And, you know, we've already squared that up. And I'm good. Don't worry about me. Nothing to see over here. So one of the nurses come by all of a sudden and say, hey, who are you? And I said, I don't know what you are. Who are you? We don't ever see him. I mean, Dr. Such-and-such never comes by here. Who are you? I said, well, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm on the board of visitors here. I got a political appointee, blah, 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 blah. Uh, don't worry about it. Just we're, we're here to get our thing done, and we're out of here. We don't like being in the hospital. You don't like having us here. And one of the nurses said, um, the only time I've ever seen him was when Chris Rock was here. Oh. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. She said, yeah, you know, Chris Rock is from South Carolina. And I think right. some of his family still is in the low country of South Carolina. So the nurse basically <laughs> says, hey, the only time we've ever seen him is the time Chris Rock was in here. So, um, so yeah, there's my, um, there you are. There's my Chris okay, Rock story. A degree story. or two of separation. Yeah, three or four, yep. five or six. Yep. Um, what if Rock knows the difference in induce and seduce? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that'll probably – we'll beat that dead horse yeah. uh, throughout the show. So, um, alopecia is a medical condition that um, – Smith's wife is dealing with. She's been diagnosed. She has. Her hair falls out. Um, Her name, I think, is Jada Pinkett Smith. Jada Pinkett Smith. Smith. Um, She's got this hair loss condition. Um, Chris Rock, an edgy comedian, kind of um, takes a shot. Not a shot at her. He makes a joke about G.I. Jane, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Um, And he said he didn't know that she had the medical condition. He just knew that she had shaved her head. So...
0: Maybe, does Sinead O'Connor have alopecia? Yeah. Or did she just save, shave her head? I don't know. Well, we, uh, things we don't know, yeah. things, we, things we do know. So anyway, Rock um, makes the joke, and I think everybody kind of laughs for a second. There, there's video of Will Smith laughing. And, and she laughs, and then she doesn't laugh. And, and when she stops laughing, it's obvious that she's bothered. And I don't know if Rock keeps going and going. You know, some of these comedians, I mean, hey, you think that's a good one? Why do you hear this one? you know, when they go a little further and a little further and a little further, and at some point in time, Jada Pinkett Smith takes exception with the joke that Chris Rock has made. And I guess Will Smith, um, there, there may be something about Scientology that you're forced to go defend your wife's honor. If it's publicly, uh, or public embarrassment is a part of uh, this, you know, it, 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 what, what, what Will Smith did. And here's the great mistake he made to me personally. Um, what he did was a lot when he when he takes this action and he makes the i mean nobody's watching the oscars anyway i mean the only people watching the oscars are those who are at the oscars you know it's, it's almost like the self-congratulatory club you know i love me and i know you love you so let's all get together so you can express to the world how much you love you and i love me and we'll love one another a little bit but don't don't mistake in the love i have for you the level of affection and um and 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 pride I have in you for the level of affection and pride I have uh, for myself, C- kind of um uh, movie star one oh one, celebrity one oh one. Well, you know Will Smith is forced to take action, and he maybe or maybe not slaps um, Chris Rock. I still think it's staged, but I still do. I, I, I saw a, an extreme slow mo. I
2: think it was Clay Travis put on his Twitter, and he, I think it was Clay. It might have been Dave uh, Portnoy. Okay. One of those two guys I was following. There. One of those internet sensations. Exactly. And uh, and one of them did the extreme slow-mo and came to the conclusion it was real. I mean, oh, it, I, mean
0: it, I, I don't doubt he got hit. But, I mean, Ric Flair hit Dusty Rhodes a time or two in the day. It's still staged. True. I mean, it's still staged. Yep. I'm not arguing he didn't hit him. I mean, I, you know, I don't think it was one of these fake stunt men, you know, turn your head real quick before you get hit. Um, I do think contact was made. And I still think it it's pretty staged. Obvious well, I mean, to me, it's standpoint. still staged. Yeah. And uh, and, and obviously yeah, there. Did yeah, will...
2: did Chris Rock know that that was going to happen after he told the joke? That's the
0: point I'm making. Yeah. You know, and and um, it was kind of all played out. You said yesterday when it looked real. Somebody told me last night it looked real. Well, I mean, there's some of the best actors in the world. They get paid a lot of money to do things that that look real, True. but really, but really aren't. Um, so, so now we're talking about this open relationship. That Will Smith and his wife have and to me I mean if a guy's going to tell a, a, a kind of a you know a, a beneath the a, the belt joke about your wife and you feel defending her honor in that way is the right thing to do but you're okay with her sleeping around as long as they're not here's their word might not mine entanglement I mean that's the word they've got this on um, this agreement between the two that as long as there's not entanglement it's an open relationship. You go do your thing. I'll go do, do my thing. Um, I don't know what the word entanglement means. It's not clearly defined. Um, if I'm not mistaken, maybe I'm saying something here that's not true. But it was um, it was reported to me by two sources that I read last night that they are both practicing Scientologists. I don't know why that matters except that um, Scientology kind of freaks me out. You know some of the what I've read about Scientology. Um, so some of the uh, some of the forcefulness. uh, Now, somebody told me yesterday, he's not one of these Tom Cruise Scientologists, you know, he's one of these Will Smith Scientologists. (laughs) What's the difference in a Tom Cruise Scientologist and a Will Smith Scientologist? Well, a, a Tom Cruise Scientologist is trying to convince everybody else they need to be a Scientologist. A Will Smith Scientologist is just a Scientologist. You know, if you want to be a Christian or a Jew or a, or a Buddhist or a Hindu, do your own thing, you know, but, but, but anyway, all of a sudden, instead of talking about, we, we had a two-minute conversation talking about a man defending his wife's honor or not, I mean, whether it's staged or not, and now all of a sudden, today, we're talking about this open relationship that a Scientologist has with his wife, and I just don't see anything to gain there. In other words, the, the, the joke bothers you to the point of having to go defend your wife's honor, But her having relationships, as long as they're not entangled with other men, is something you don't feel like. Um, So so we're going to settle that once and for all. I mean, I talked to my friends at the Oscars yesterday, and they've agreed to go along with my plan of putting Mike Tyson as host of next year's Oscars. And if anybody says a joke about somebody else that they find offensive, they ain't going to slap the host. I mean, there may be lawsuits and there may be disagreements and pickets and protests but they ain't slapping the host because the rock plays fighter mike tyson is a real live fighter so um yeah um aca acapulco is in mexico um I, alopecia is a disease or a, or a hair loss condition, and acapello is singing without any music. Right? right? <laughs> I think you have that. The correct. Rock Play fights, Mike Tyson really fights. Alopecia is a hair loss condition, medical hair loss condition. Acapulco is in Mexico, mm-hmm. and acapello is something Barney Fife sang on well, uh um, I, I Andy boy, Griffith a- years a- a- in. Acapella. A- Acapella. That's how, that's how a voice heard. Okay, it. acapella.
2: But but it sounds like you've got it all figured well, out. I do. And, and now you. twenty one in the morning. And,
0: and now you do. We're going to come back. We're going to leave that, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk a little bit about. You know what the wheat theory is? Wheat. You know what the wheat theory? W H E A T. Wheat theory. Nope. Okay, I'll tell you that. You know what the Lippman Gap is? L I P P M A N. The things I do for I you. I can't Rem. wait to find yeah. out. Back in a minute. I'm not going to bore you to death on some of what the um. Uh, the Biden administration did yesterday. Rev was mentioning he had some of the answers and questions or questions and answers Mm -hmm. on a note card. Uh, Rand Paul made it explicitly clear yesterday that it's generous. I mean, it's very American to help people when it's obvious they're having problems. I mean, all all families or the majority of families have older people in their family that you kind of, you help facilitate some of their answers, some of their, um, what they meant, what they didn't mean, but that's that's certainly understandable i mean it's, it's very appropriate for people who love other people to try to help them um get their message across and get them across the finish line and help uh, us more clearly understand what they meant um there, there's always cleaning up to do in other words um the doctor speaks to the mom and the kid and the mom says the mom's 85 years old and she says something and the doctor kind of looks at the kid and says i know what you mean i mean I, we'll, we'll figure this out together there's generosity in that there's love in that there's adoration in that um we all know people i mean i don't my both my parents died early so i've not dealt with an aging parent but we all know people in our lives my grandfather was very much like that i mean it was kind of a joke you know um he didn't really mean that i mean he said it but he didn't really mean it because he's 88 years old and that's just the things 88 year olds say um Here's what we've meant because we've discussed this behind closed doors. So I mean there's a there's a level of respect there, but but it's not the President of the United States. I mean, it's your grandfather, your grandmother, your husband, your wife, whomever has um, has entered into cognitive decline and don't have full capacities and aren't able to answer um, the questions as properly and accurately as they normally do. I mean we certainly understand that. we we respect that of family members who go the extra mile. To, 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 uh, to, I don't know, to allow that person to live in dignity and and, and protect them a little bit. Um, I'll give you another example of my grandfather. My grandfather, I mean, we thought they should have taken his license from him. But we weren't going to be the ones that said, hey, you don't have any business driving. I mean, there's no way we could get there. So you know what we'd do? When he parked, we just all move out of his way. I mean, they, you know, he would pull into a parking spot with five other cars, and at the break, everybody would move those five cars because you didn't want him running into you. I mean, he kind of knew that. There was a certain, hey, let me back that truck out for you, Pop. You know, friends of mine would say, hey, um, I saw your grandfather. You know, he's got this big dent. you where I'm headed. I mean, there's always Mm -hmm. been us helping other people along uh, because we respect and adore those people. But it's not the leader of the free world. And when the leader of the free world makes three classic mistakes and then says, that's not what I meant, and then says it didn't even happen. I mean, in essence, he basically denied that they happened. Peter Doocy cornered him yesterday at a press conference and said, you know, um, you've argued that we've got to be consistent and steadfast and, and and make sure we're speaking with clarity. Yet on your trip to Europe, you said on three separate accounts, things that the White House has walked back. And he said, they didn't walk anything back. And then he says, I, you know, I, I didn't mean it the way it sounded. Well, Doocy did. Uh, a good job, but not a great job. The great job would have been to to um, chronicle what Biden said verbatim and what the White House response was, however many hours later it was that it came out. He did a great job in articulating what Biden said or recounting what Biden said, but he didn't have um, exactly what the White House did when it responded to— um, I mean, they were playing the clips this morning on the Red Eye radio show as I was coming over— This morning, when he said, you know, my God, this man cannot remain in power. When he said, you know, you'll see when you're over there. Um, Now, he says, I've been in Poland. I meant when they get to Poland. Well, I don't know that those folks knew they were going to Poland or not. There's some concern or or, um, disagreement about In fact, Ted
2: Cruz said uh, last night, he said, oh, so our troops are training – training Ukrainian troops in Poland. He said, that's news to me if it's happening. And by the way, if it is
0: happening, that may have been classified information. Yeah. And the one thing that, that Trump got in trouble for, well, the media professed to, that, that he was irresponsible and just saying things flippantly, you know, whatever came in his head came out of his mouth. I mean, he wasn't a radio show host. He was a president of the United States. And his words are taken very seriously. Um, they're, they're to be taken very seriously. He's the commander in chief of the armed forces of the most powerful military on earth. Um, but yesterday, anyway, he goes and talks about this, you know, this um, this tax increase. It's a wealth tax, and it's going to be, you know, we got the the the, the rich have to pay their fair share. Um, and and I don't want to go into um the details and specifics because I'd bore you to death. It, it's kind of a twenty percent minimum tax rate on um basically estates over a hundred million dollars, and he's arguing the people making you know with the estates over a hundred million dollars aren't paying their their fair share. Um, the I don't know the, the, the those taxpayers paid an average of twenty three point eight percent tax on capital gains um, last year. They paid thirty seven percent on ordinary income. Um, the average tax rate for the one percent is about twenty five point six percent across the board. And I'm talking about individual filers. You know, it's, it's the long form, but it's still not corporate America. Not corporate tax returns. I mean, some would be S corps and LLCs but it's, by and large, high-income earners. About the 1%, the high-income earners, and their marginal tax rate or effective tax rate last year was about 25.6%. But here's where it gets a bit spooky as far as I'm concerned. Uh, The 20% minimum tax rate would apply both to ordinary income and the increase in the value of assets at a given year. Um, This basically means that he's going to tax unrealized capital gains, uh, which currently but they aren't taxed as assets under current law until they're sold. And then you have a capital gains and it's realized and you're taxed. Well, what they're doing basically in simplicity's sake or for simplicity's sake, they are redefining wealth as income. I mean, if you inherit, you know, a hundred million dollar business, uh, they're going to treat that hundred million dollar business as if it were income, not just the income generated by you running the hundred million dollar business that your father or grandfather or someone in your in your family you just started built made successful now all of a sudden you're the benefactor of that you got a hundred million dollar business that hundred million dollar business I mean, the income is generated let's say it's an s Corps and, and you own the business so you're going to make 25.6 percent in uh in income tax as a result of running the business and the business being extremely profitable but now you got this 20 percent minimum tax that applies to unrealized capital gains um so you're going to be what twenty million dollars? I mean, there's a twenty million dollar tax bill due on a hundred million dollar business because it's an asset you own it. Maybe you inherited it, maybe you did, maybe you built it. But but I'm just saying hypothetically, you inherit the business, you got a hundred million dollar. Uh, now forget estate taxing. I mean, this this you know we're 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 not we're past that. Here, here's the, the the crux of the matter is the government has decided that the only way they can do what they choose to do and want to do is to take more and more and more of your money. And the wheat theory, Rev, is this. Um, there, there's somebody who makes wheat. There's somebody who needs wheat. They consume wheat. They eat wheat. Wheat is a part of their daily diet. The government makes it so complicated for the person to make this wheat that they stop making the wheat. Not only is the wheat maker punished, the person who needs the wheat as substance it's something to keep them alive. They can't find the wheat any longer, and that's where we're headed. I mean, we're quickly approaching that. And when the White House begins redefining wealth as income, you're going to complicate business in a in a way that the the guy that owns the business says, "Man, I you know, really." I mean, my family left me up. I mean, I've worked in the business and I paid ordinary income, and I've done all these wonderful things to fund all these wonderful government programs, and all of a sudden, a A unrealized capital gain, the the asset in my life that I've never, ever intended to sell, whether I sell it or not, there's a $20 million tax bill on the other side of this. I'll sell it. You know, I'll be done with it. If I got to pay $20 million just to own the business, I'd rather pay the $20 million and and not own the business. And people are going to start making less and less and less wheat. And the person who makes the wheat is probably going to be okay. They've, They've done fairly well. The people that need the wheat, that consume the wheat, that, that, that survive based on whether the wheat is available or not, that's the ones you're going to punish. So, so believe that or not, when you start punishing, when you start treating wealth as assets, people are just going to cash in on their wealth and they're going to be unproductive members of society. And that's, I mean, it, this is a horrible idea. Now, it is not going to pass. I mean, I just can't imagine a Joe Manchin or some of the more moderate Democrats, but it, but it really tells me where the where the Biden cognitive decline stands. I mean, every time um, we 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 we're, were led we were led to believe that Biden is a centrist. He's not a a liberal. He's not a progressive. He's an old school Northeast liberal. But every time he has a chance to yin or yang, he never yangs. He always yings. And by ying, I mean. He gives um, priority to the progressive agenda, the Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders of the world, the the socialist element within the mainstream Democrat Party, and there is no way to quantify this. I mean, if the White House argues that this is something they will propose to be, I mean, they'll they'll they'll, they'll ask Pelosi to put this on uh, the calendar in the House, and and if you believe that redefining wealth as income is in America's DNA, we'll get exactly what we deserve. And that'll be no wheat. You know, the old Seinfeld episode, no soup for you. Mm. It'll be no wheat for you. So there's the wheat theory. Wow. And um, and that, you know, it, it, elections have consequences. That There's no doubt about that. And we're seeing the consequences of what I argue is one of the best de- uh, worst decisions this country has made in regard to electing its president in a long, long, long time. Let's go to the phone.
2: Here's Larry in the PD. Hey, Larry.
3: Good morning. So, here's my question for you. Who inherits Home Depot? Hmm. Nobody.
0: Correct. It's a publicly held company.
3: And don't you know that that's exactly what these large, small businesses are going to do? They're just going to issue stock, create a board, dilute the ownership of the company until nobody inherits it when you die. But, you know, we'll name our CEO, our successor before we pass away. It's not going to work. Every time the American government comes up with a way, the American entrepreneur will come up with a better way. It just—it's not going to work. And really, what it's designed to do is to encourage. It's—it's it's like you just kind of said. It is to discourage people from from creating that kind of business where the wealth of it can be left behind that way. Where I say I own this business, but it doesn't discourage Home Depot or Lowe's or Walmart or Microsoft or any of those guys. So while the Democrats love to say that the rich get richer. Well, if you think of Microsoft as an entity or Home Depot, this will make the rich get richer because it's only going to force consolidation at the top. That market share is going to go somewhere because though though that person who needs the wheat is going to say, well, I used to like buy my wheat from Farmer Ted, now he's going to say, well, I guess I'll have to go to Kroger and get my wheat. It's just going to consolidate uh, power at the top, which is really what they want. They want this blend of socialism and hyper-capitalism in a way – I mean, we're going to look like Russia. We're going to be run by oligarchs. We're going to be run by a handful of CEOs, and that's how we're going to decide what our policies are, what's good for these five mega-companies.
0: You know, Larry. I, historically, I'll, the only thing I'm going to push back a little bit on you. Then you like it, when I push back, and I like it when you push back a little bit. The only thing I'll push back a little bit, and I've always believed what you said earlier when you said the entrepreneur will always find a way. I'm 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 bumping into more and more entrepreneurs. Who believe that by the year 2030 I mean I'm using a hypothetical year an arbitrary number here but by a certain um, if, if government continues to creep as it has crept into the private sector over the past 20 or 25 years that there, there's a mindset amongst a lot of entrepreneurs now that don't believe they can find a way it, it will it will that their, their their world is going to be so affected or impacted by what government does or does not do That they just kind of throw their hands up and say you know i'll find a job somewhere else working for somebody else i'll sell out i'll do whatever it takes and you're right consolidation will be a classic example of that give me my 100 million and i'll sell my lumberyard to home depot they can shut it down and merge market a share or whatever but but and i'm not disagreeing with you but but i've always believed that the american entrepreneur could find a way and would find a way i'm not so sure i'm all in on that any longer larry
3: well, you may be right, but here's my prediction. A Republican will become the next great trust buster. There will be a president that's elected on breaking up Google. There will be a president that's elected on breaking up Amazon. Just like they did with the, with the telephone and telecommunication, uh, it's going to happen in, in the Internet services game. You're going to see some breaking up. And I think the American public is going to push back against this kind of thing. I think we just got to give it some time. But, uh, I mean, and I'm always optimistic when it comes to this stuff. But uh, I've always said that it'll probably be a Republican that forgives student loans. And it'll probably be a Republican that breaks up the next big company. But we'll see.
0: We'll see. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that, my man. Good call, as usual. From Larry, somebody else on the phone? Yep. It's Rujan in Darlington. Hey,
2: Rujan.
4: Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, listen. Um, you know, I, I was I was listening to what you were saying, and you know, my, my question is, uh, years ago, Margaret Thatcher said socialism works until you run out of other people's money, and and from my review of history, once you run out of other people's money and you start, you know, the government starts uh, doing certain things for them, what happens to those people that are that are that love freedom, and don't like, uh, you know, people to tell them what to do? and how to do it. You know, you wind up with what I call revolution, maybe, uh, people in the streets fighting against their government. Um, that kind of looks like 17, you know, 71, 72, 73. I mean, you know, it's just, I'm, in my eyes, it's just not going to happen where you're going to take a man's business, you're going to take a man's money, you're going to take a man's land, you're going to enslave him to the government, and that man's gonna sit by and just say, hmm, okay, I'm gonna go along with that. And I I, I I hey, it might work and I'm gonna say this, but you know, it might work in the black community, but you know, the the, the larger uh freedom loving, you know, rights loving Americans are not gonna go with it. They're not gonna go for it. I mean, you look at China and how does China keep what they got? Through control, they make you disappear if you, you're a tennis player that says something that they don't like. You know <clears throat> what happens to a, a, a television producer that puts a sign up behind, uh, you know, on, on, uh, the reporter on the broadcast? Huh? She disappears for you know a day or so, but but still she got arrested for free speech. You know, this is a rabbit hole that uh, that that the American government or these politicians. They may not want to go down it because, you know, sometimes you, you you back a rabbit up in a hole, they come out fighting just like cats.
0: Thank you, I Appreciate that. And, and a lot of this plays into the Remember the speech we played by J.D. Vance at the Nationalist Conservative Movement meeting, wherever it was, where Peter Thiel was the keynote speaker and Vance argued that there's going to be some activism within conservatism in other words, what are we going to do? It's obvious what the progressives and liberals want to do when they get control of government. Are we just going to be kind of like deregulators, and uh, are we going to be reformers? I think Larry's touching onto something. I mean, you know, conservatism does not distort the free market in, in name only, but, but activist conservatism, are we going to do things in the name of undoing things that have been harmful to uh, the private sector, to, to capitalism in general? Um, that, that's the great struggle within the conservative mindset right now. Conservatives don't believe in government. I mean, they would rather, I mean, many, many conservatives that have a libertarian bias about them would rather drown government in a bathtub. I'm not one of those. I, resp- I mean, I accept that government has to be a functioning part of our economy moving forward. But are we willing to be activists in finding things we believe are deeply flawed in the way we govern the private sector today, undo those things? I mean, that's very activist. And that's something conservatives are normally not very comfortable with or in charge of. And Ron DeSantis, I think
2: why people kind of gravitate toward him is he's doing some of that. Well, I mean, DeSantis and J.D. Vance, to me, are the
0: guys that say, um, yeah, if, 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 we get, if, if we get control of the levers of government, let's not be ashamed to do things. Let's not be discouraged in the name of conservatism to not do certain things. Back in a minute. You know, one thing I tried to find in some of this language with clarity or try to find some clarity about what, what if this uh, business declines in value? What if the business is worth $100 million today and you pay a $20 million um, tax bill because it's an unrealized capital gain and the business, something happens and your widget is no longer in vogue, it's no longer uh, desired and all of a sudden the business is only worth 25000 I mean, I can't find anywhere where the government gives you the write-off. Where you can write it can't. Uh, I can't, I can't off. find anywhere in this language where the government um, gives you the ability to write it off. Hey, in the next hour, and I want you guys to stick with us for a second, I'm going to argue in the next hour that there is no superpower in the world today. That, that's okay. a really provocative conversation hmm. to have. Remember yesterday we talked about multi-portal and uniportal and um, Jean Kirkpatrick, I read about, a lot about what she said. Uh, she was one of the Reagan architects uh, winning the Cold War. Uh, Charles Krauthammer, the great uh, Fox commentator who was an intellectual conservative, he said a lot of these things. But, but have we so mismanaged being the lone superpower that we're no longer a superpower, and we're living in a world today where there is no legitimate superpower on this planet. Let's go to the phone.
2: Boudreaux in Orangeburg listening to WTQSA, Boudreaux.
5: Good morning. You know, this talk of socialism, uh, when you think about all right, if, if they just bulldozed every mobile home park and every mansion in the country, just bulldozed it to the ground, Gave everybody two, three, four, and five-bedroom houses, depending on the size of their families, on about an acre and a half of land. Took everybody's money, my little couple hundred bucks, somebody's couple million bucks, just took it off everybody, divided it out evenly among everybody. Made everybody even in the whole country, from where they lived to the money they had in the bank. It wouldn't take but a, a year or two, three years, and you'd have mansions, and you'd have trailer parks, You'd have uh, the good sides of town. You'd have the bad sides of town. You'd have millionaires and you'd have homeless people. It wouldn't take it wouldn't take very long at all. Uh, and that's if they just scrapped everything and everybody equal. And I don't think there's many people that would deny that uh, that's what would happen. So how in the hell do they expect to take a country that's already got people that because people that succeed know how to damn it succeed. They did it once, they'll do it again. And uh, so this whole socialism project, uh, i just, how do they expect to take a, 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 this country and make everybody – that word equity is getting on my last nerve. See, we've got equality. That's what we need. Equity means everybody's going to get to the same uh, 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 finish line at the same time, and that ain't going to happen. And I just don't understand how, why so many people have this uh, utopian idea that we can all just – the exact same thing is it, it, it's, it's troubling it's troubling to me there Ken.
0: thank you boudreau we got to take a break hard break top of the hour um so, well we don't have time yet back in a minute i'd intended to argue with the second hour this morning that America is not a superpower let's do this instead larry and and Rujan and boudreau have me scratching my head a bit i mean there was a consistent theme in their three messages and we both kind of nod our heads when people say these these um, these uplifting and patriotic things about our country, you know, um, it is a it is a capitalist society and entrepreneur spirit will always win out. And, you know, the the smart businessman or woman will always find a way and prevail. The data shows something completely different than that. Um, but the data shows American startups are about half what they were in 1978. Over the last five years we've seen a precipitous decline in the number of people willing to go to the bank ask to borrow money and start a new business i mean that it, it, that has been the essence of america as far as i'm concerned uh i've said it before and i'll say it again i had a front row seat at the american dream my dad started a business in 1963 with nothing and built that business into a somewhat thriving enterprise um good times bad times uh, chicken and feathers, the old analogy <laughs> I like to use. Sometimes you eat chicken, sometimes you eat feathers. But, but
2: are these things just in cycles generally? I mean, and, and typically, you know, from my point of view, you know, Democrats are in power. They seem to be somewhat hostile to, to business, and 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 Republicans seem to be a little more favorable, and they deregulate, make things a little easier. Well, I, mean, I mean, is this not cycle-related based on who's in power? So sure. right, now, I- right now things are anti— Business I mean, the, the
0: government has cycles, of course. Um, the economy has cycles, no question about it. When Democrat leadership is in place, we govern one way. When Republican leadership is in place, we govern um, about the same way. A little bit differently, <laughs> but about about the same way. No, the, the point I'm trying to make, you're right. I mean, the, the, the economy is cyclical. There There is no doubt about that. The point I'm trying to make is success is harder and harder no matter who's in charge. Let me give you a couple of statistics. I just told you that the number of startups in America today is about half what it was in 1978. I mean, that's troubling. That's staggering. Um, These larger dominant companies, Larry was talking about Home Depot and some of the Lowe's and all these others, um, they have the political muscle to defend the policy advantages and push for new ones that give them even more advantages. So when, when the person considers a startup, now we hear about Twitter. And we hear about Facebook, and we are the land of opportunity. I don't wanna, I don't, I don't wanna say that, you know, America's doomed and destined for failure because of these enormous restrictions we put on. But but when you think about, let's use groceries as a, we're talking about wheat a second ago. Walmart captures one of every four dollars this nation spends buying groceries. I mean, how many mom and pop grocery stores are there? I mean, I'm convinced it's gonna be Publix and Harris Teeter. And what we'll call the premium grocery experience and food line and walmart are the only other options in town so walmart i mean all of us we don't have to buy electronics we don't have to buy you know gadgets and goodies we must buy our food from somewhere correct i mean we don't live off the land any longer maybe we will again one day we don't live off the land any longer but but so we buy our groceries so walmart captures one of every four dollars in this country, spent on buying groceries online. We talk about online commerce and online shopping. It's growing like we've never seen before, and brick-and-mortar retail are paying a substantial uh, cost associated with that. Amazon gets 51 percent of all the growth in retail. Excuse me, in e-commerce. In other words, if e-commerce grows 100 Amazon gets 51 percent of all the growth. I didn't say 51 percent of the business. I mean, we of course they don't do that. I mean, they don't get more business than everybody else put together on the internet. But e commerce sales growth, Amazon captures about 51% of that. It doesn't leave a lot of other space to compete. I mean, it makes it far more complicated. And it is distorted capitalism. It is, I don't want to say a state capitalism. I think we're headed there, Rev. But I think when Larry says the entrepreneur will always figure out a better way. When, when 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 Boudreaux says if you dole out the country's resources and everybody had the exact same amount of money or the same amount of opportunity, the winners would win, the losers would lose because some would work harder, be more diligent, persevere, smarter, um, just more capable, wh- whatever requirement or stipulation there is, I don't know that I believe that as sincerely as I once did. Um, my world is businessmen and women. I mean, that that's the universe I circulate in. Uh, Rev, you probably deal with more... Um, producers and and radio folk and engineers and I mean we naturally gravitate we silo ourselves into people with not exclusive skill sets but similar skill sets similar lifestyles I don't hang around with billionaires do you
2: <laughs> just you
0: but I, mean, I hang around well okay I <laughs> hang around with normal business people some have a lot more than others but they all strive to maintain a livelihood depending on that business being successful or not I mean, I don't have a lot of real close friends that work for somebody else. I just don't. We've we, we gravitated toward one another and we, you know, we're as discouraged as we've ever been. I love this country. I just told you a second ago, I've had it up, an, an, an up close and up an, a front row seat of the American Dream. I understand that. I am so aware that it's ridiculous. Sometimes I get teary eyed thinking about it. You know, where else could someone build a building in a tobacco field in a town with no stoplight? And forty years later, employ hundred and some odd people. Nowhere. I mean, there, there is no other American country dream. in the world like that. But success is getting harder and harder and harder. And the data clearly indicates that that people are beginning to become discouraged.
2: Yeah, the scale
0: tips. I guess. Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's the old um, how many are pushing, how many are pulling, how many are riding. Mm-hmm. And, and and if I'm going to make you know hundred thousand dollars a year, let's say that's my that's the income I want. I mean, if I can make $100,000 a year, I can live any way I want to. And I'm going to toil in a, in a business that, that that I can make $100,000 a year, but I'm dealing with regulation the first person. I'm dealing with taxes. I'm dealing with, with banking issues. I'm dealing with, uh, as you said, the s- cycles of the economy. And I can go over here, punch a clock, make hundred grand. i am far better to sell to Home Depot and go punch that clock and then pay me my $100,000, and, and then the dominant company becomes even more dominant. And the market force is becoming uh, becoming even more diluted and, and centralized. The political muscle is more exerted and and the outcomes are consolidation, 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 because once again, these companies have the ability to create policy advantages and push for new policy advantages that, that you know, make it tougher and rougher for you to succeed in the marketplace. And and once again That's the old pulling the ladder up. But well, it's pulling up the ladder, but but it's I mean the, the people that I interact with are the people who make the wheat. Now now we need consumers. We need buyers of the wheat. We need consumers of the wheat. but but we're in the business of making the wheat. Whatever you need, we want to try to give it to you. Never in American history, I was born in 1963. I don't know how it was like in the early 1800s or the late 1800s or the early now I don't I don't understand life until 1963 when I'm born. and then at some point in time in my young adulthood, I became aware of the economy, understanding of the economy. I still learn things about the economy. I told you one day on the radio, my daughter is a student at the Dartmouth School of Business. She comes home with homework, microeconomics, and you know all these other sorts of things. I have no academic understanding of that at all. I mean, we talk about EBITDA, and NOI, and return on I mean, all these other sorts of things. I am incredibly familiar with them, but I don't have any academic understanding of that. She's She's understanding or learning from an academic perspective. But, but I'm I'm in the real world, and I, I learned those things in the real world, and I've tried to apply what I've learned into future endeavors, and never before have I been so discouraged as I am today. Because making a buck, being successful as a small businessman or woman, is harder than it's ever been in this country's history.
2: But does it boil down to taxes and regulations? Ta- yeah,
0: it's the government. It's the onerous burden of government. It's the expensive price it costs a business to operate and function, it's hard to be profitable. Success is harder today in the small business world. And those are the men and women who built this nation and we're penalizing and punishing these people who have built this nation. The majority of you don't run businesses. I accept and appreciate that. Kind of admire it, to be honest with you. But those who do understand what I'm talking about, another regulation, another stipulation, another mandate, another tax, I mean, I I tried to argue last week, one day last week I argued about if I were king of the world, I'm not, but if I were king of the world and I were in charge of local government, a local taxing authority would not have the ability to tax my private enterprise at more than 10% of gross revenue. The absurdity of that. I mean, a lot of businesses, I would argue 50% of businesses operate on a margin less than 10%. So the government deserves more than the owner? I mean, the bank's charging you 5% on your note, or let's say four and a half. So the bank's making four you you're trying to make 8 or 9, and the government wants more than 10? I mean, God in heaven says 10's enough. And today in America, in certain situations and circumstances, the government's getting 20, 22, 25, 30%. I mean, with a recent school district increase in taxes, about somewhere between 20 and 33% of a business's revenue the revenue the business generates goes to do what? Service the tax bill. So you've got the bank, I mean, the bank loans you the money. They take the risk. They're expecting a 45 or 5% return on that investment. That's the interest rate. You're the business owner. You hope for a 12 or 13% return, but realistically, you're shooting for a 9 or 10%. And the government sends you a bill that is 20% of gross revenue? And, and we've normalized that. Why? Because the kids need to be better educated. The roads need to be fixed. The ditches need to be cleaned out. We need to do all these wonderful things in the name of government. And it's made small businessmen and women's life unbelievably complicated and less likely to be successful. And the reason we've had this precipitous decline in startups, a lot of people look at the pro forma, that That is a, something you put together saying, hey, if I sell this many widgets and make this much profit, here's what my numbers look like. And then you plug the tax. You plug the cost of doing business. Somebody went to my dad a long time ago, promoting a countywide business license. And my dad, I'll never forget, it was it a was, member of county council. And I'll tell you, my dad was real colorful. The person said, and they were friends, really good friends, The per, he said, what do I get for this countywide business license? And the guy said, the right to do business in the county. And my father said, hell, I'm doing business in this county and have done business in this county for 40 years. What do I need you to reestablish a rule saying I can do something I've been doing 40 years? It was a chance to fleece the private sector. It was another fee or another tax. You know, we don't raise taxes much any longer. We implement fees. There's this fee. It's 2% of revenue. There's this fee. It's one and a half percent of revenue. There's this fee. It's only $50 a week. How many of us say, how many of us have wives or husbands and they buy things that you know they don't need, but th- their response is always, it's only $5. I mean, it was only $7. You're nodding your head. <laughs> I mean, my wife and I have this debate about 10 times a year. What do we need with that? It was only $8. It was only 9 bucks. Well, nine here, nine there, nine over there, nine over there, nine over there, 1% here, 2% there. The, the point I'm trying to make, and I want to go back to Larry and, and, uh, and Boudreaux they believe in the entrepreneurial spirit of america i believe in the entrepreneurial spirit of america the people in washington need to understand that the only hope we have to reestablish ourselves is to allow businesses to thrive and prosper and we're living in an age and era where it's far more complicated to be successful at business than it ever has been and that's not the failure of the businessman or woman It's the complexities and the expense and the punitive nature. That's what I keep arguing. The punitive nature of government. They believe that every business guy is is the boogeyman. Not only is he the boogeyman, he's the revenue generator. See, they're kind of conflicted here. You know how those business guys are. You know how those business ladies are. You got to watch them. What do you mean you got to watch them? You need to embrace these people. You need to cherish these people. You need to do everything you can to allow these people to be uber successful so we can grow this economy and everybody can pay their fair share. And, you know, Philip and I, Representative Lowe and I got this debate about 388. Something's got to be done about that. The, the onerous nature of which we tax commercial property in South Carolina is devastating to sustaining a business or more, more than that, do I start one or not? Is it worth investing in this property, creating jobs, employing people, paying taxes, or is it not? And I think a lot of really dedicated smart business people are concluding it's probably not worth it. And that has a chilling effect mm. at some point in time on the economy. It can't be good no, for No, it's terrible. It, it's horrible, Rev. And, and, and I, 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 I give the public sector a hard time. And I don't do it in, in a personal fashion I don't have any begrudgment or, or hard feelings toward public sector employees I mean we need people doing those jobs but I think people passing laws and implementing regulation and understanding the burdens the public the private sector has to deal with but I mean, they, they need to understand that we're at the tipping point I mean the, the cost of doing business in America is unbelievably expensive if you're a small man or small businessman or small business woman let's go to the phone Here's Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike.
1: Hey, uh, Amen. I, I think uh, you you really really going around something that's really has been just onerous on uh, small businesses and uh, small entrepreneurs, and even the midsize entrepreneurs have been uh, hammered by this. It's like whack a mole. Every time they stick up their head, they make a dollar or two, and somebody wants to whack them on the head and take it away from them. And that, and the thing about it is, I, I noticed this years ago that uh, every election cycle, there's always a, a, a bunch of people that get in there and there's a little bit of deep blood seeps into the political machine and they get up there and they go in and they go, I'm going to go up there and make a law to do this. I'm going to make this illegal. I'm going to punish this. And, uh, what what the end result is every law costs money and resources. It leaches a little bit of resources out of the private sector because it has to be paid for. It has to be accounted for. And somebody'll put up a committee to see how successful it's been accounted for. And all of these things. But every they they keep accumulating laws every cycle. Every cycle. More and more rules. And some of these rules are, are quite frankly, they're antiquated. Some of them are stupid. And uh, some of them never should have been even considered. They're just something for somebody to put a feather in their cap. Hey, we did something. We passed a rule here. Uh, you got to start looking at things and seeing the practical effect of these things. And accumulative, all these little these little rules, finally siphon off the life's blood of our economy, and uh, the small businesses are what make it work. They're, uh, they, you know, uh, very, uh, very little innovation. In fact, I would argue that uh, Walmart, once they get in the uh, cat daddy seat, they, uh, uh, they, they don't want innovation. They like it just the way it is. And if they have any innovation, it's to make sure that, like as you say, pull up the ladder that nobody else can follow down that that road and uh, do what a, a a Walmart did, and that's a and that's a dangerous thing. And finally, you're going to make enough rules, everybody's going to be an outlaw, and you're back to the Middle Ages. You know, we just have uh, oligarchs and uh,
0: peasants. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. See, and Mike touched on something there. Um, you're going to make everybody an outlaw. The, the conversation I have with a lot of my folk, you know, my peers, my kindred spirits is, are they trying to do this or not? Are they trying to force me to bend or break some of the laws so they can catch me bending or breaking the laws? I'm telling you, Rev, you're kind of not. Mm-hmm. There's a serious mindset out there among small business men and women now who believe a lot of this is very intentional. We're going to we're going to make it so difficult for them to make a profit that they're going to have to skate. They're going to have to bend and and and, and kind of manipulate and, and take advantage and of. Then they got you. And then they got you. You better believe it. Wow. And and, and I'm telling you that there <laughs> are those there are those in my world, and I'm talking about small men and small business men and small business women who sincerely believe that the government is. Not not just punitive by restricting and regulating and stipulating and mandating and taxing, but they're they're honestly trying to force you to make decisions that violate some of their some of their rules and laws in anticipation of wow. catching you
2: and teaching you a lesson. And look how some of the politicians in Washington vilify successful people. Yeah,
0: well, I mean, you hear about it all the time. Sure, and and I'm telling you, John Mellencamp had a song, "I Fight Authority." And authority always wins. I can certainly relate to that. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, this is interesting to me because I've read a lot about this, trying to better understand. I want to make sure I'm not losing my touch. I mean, not that I'm some you know business guru, but I've lived my entire life in the private sector. Um, I've run a business all of my adult life in varying capacities, uh, in manufacturing and farming and development and some of these others, and I've learned a lot. Uh, a lot of the content from this show comes from those conversations I have with, um, with kindred spirits and the way we uh, address the challenges we deal with. Um, and one and of the common sentiments, and I think you kind of nodded your head like, wow, okay, I hadn't thought of it that way. So the bank loans you the money to start the business, or the bank loans you the money to expand the business, whatever, I mean, you know, the entrepreneur spirit lives within, and you gotta have capital. Access to capital is a big deal. Nobody has a million bucks laying around, or most don't, so you gotta go to the bank borrow a million bucks. The bank loans you the money to start the business or expand the business, the bank expects you to pay four and a half percent, five percent, whatever the rates are. You know, I mean, we're in historic low rates, so people are taking advantage of some of the uh, some of the financing. Uh, so you're paying. So the bank's making about four and a half percent out of your business. I mean, that's kind of their that's their rate of return. I mean, they loaned you a million bucks, or a half million, or two million, or whatever the number was. They expect that that you know interest and principal payment to hit the uh, to be you know transferred or whatever. Write a check. Um, and they're, they're making about four and a half five 5% in today's low, um, low interest rate economy. So the business owner, I mean, there's there some sectors that try to make 20%. The majority I know are somewhere between nine, 12, 13, 14%. I mean, that's kind of the effective margin. You try to, man, if I can squeeze 10% out of here, you know, I I'll be fairly happy. And that's after the, um, as I used to say, the, the gas for the weed eaters bought, the post-it notes are bought. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about everything is paid for. Um, and the government all of a sudden comes in and thinks they deserve twenty percent of that income in the name of um, public safety and education and a lot of other things that government has um, offered as services and we've become used and accustomed to having those sorts of services. Um, but but I, I think when any anybody that doesn't run a business, I mean, is that fair? I mean, for you out there that don't run a business. And you don't understand some of the language and EBITDA, NOI, and ROI, and all these other terminologies that business women and men understand. I mean, if the bank expects 5%, you expect 10 or 11 or 12%. Does the government deserve 20%? Really? Twice what God says is reasonable? And that's kind of, I'm not talking about income tax. I'm not talking about corporate tax. I'm, t- I'm simply talking about property tax. I mean, the property tax burden. On, on local businesses in this community are in the neighborhood of 20 percent i mean i've talked to a, a multitude of people after we kind of touched on this last week and i mean you know we're building an aquatic center in education you know we're we're, we're developing land for economic development i mean we're doing a lot of things in the name and making the community better at what expense i mean who's footing the bill I mean, we know the increase in ad valorem taxes. You said your primary residence went up how much?
2: 22.4%. Okay,
0: 22.4%. So a lot of people's taxes equal about three house payments. I mean, think of that. Now, the bank loaned you the money to buy the property. You bought the home. Now you pay the bank back X number of dollars a month. And all of a sudden, the, the tax is about, you know, two or three months worth of what you're paying the bank. It's just unbelievable. And I think we've got to really address what are we getting in return. I mean, look at the proficiency scores in American education. I'm not picking on Florence One. I think they've done tremendously better over the last, since O'Malley got here. And, and you know, I'm, I, I'll criticize Rich O'Malley when I think he deserves to be criticized, and I'll applaud when I think he deserves to be applauded. I think he deserves to be applauded more than he deserves to be criticized. But but we're paying a lot of money to educate young people in K-12 through in Florence County. We're paying a lot of money to do certain things in education. And if you look at, I think we touched on this last week, the county gets about 23% of your property tax revenue. The city gets about 22%. Um, I think it's about 47% between the two. One may be 23 and one twenty-four ish. ish um, The school district gets 53%. We spend a lot of money on public education, not in just this county, but all over this country. What bang are we getting for that buck? What are the proficiency improvements? That the amount of money we spend and dedicate to provide educational opportunities, K through 12, across this country are staggering. The amount of money we spend is staggering. How do we perform? I mean, wh- who holds that entity or enterprise accountable? If we're spending more money than we ever have, to educate kids K through 12, what bang for the buck are we getting? And it's almost like people in the public sector, God bless them, the, the money is derived from where? Thin air? A printing press? I'll give Breeze credit, a lucky leprechaun who farts nuggets of gold? None of that is true. It comes from the success or failure, or really the success, there is no money left when a business fails, and it goes back to the wheat theory. The people that make the wheat are going to eventually be tired of being punished for making the wheat and those who consume the wheat to um, sustain themselves. There, there is going to be no wheat made. And I mean, we're going to have a real complicated scenario here before too long. And once again, the data clearly shows that the level, the, the, the degree of entrepreneurship in America today is in dramatic decline, it's in free fall. Um, 80% of all businesses asking for permits in 1978 were new businesses, were startups. Today, 60% of all permits issued are branches of existing businesses. Lowe's wanted to build a new Lowe's. Home Depot wanted to build a new Home Depot. Walmart wanted to build a new Supercenter. Target wanted to build a new Target Center. I'm not begrudging of those businesses and enterprises. You know, those folks pay a lot of taxes. They had to provide, uh, they provide a service to the community. But, but think about that. I mean, think about the, the, the political muscle some of these enter, uh, enterprises have and what the small business man and woman do not have. So once again, that number's gone from 80% permitted for new businesses or startups to almost an inversion. I mean, it's almost uh, 70% now or for branches of existing businesses. To me, that's unhealthy for an economy. The public sector still generates the revenue I mean the public sector does okay doesn't matter if home depot does it or mom and pop do it but i think the the community entrepreneurship is the vibrant ingredient for a uh an economy that perpetuates itself i mean do we really want to live in a world where there are three airlines four retails and two online uh, because that's where we're headed and larry touched on that a second ago by what he believes Uh, We'll have to require political activism by people who normally don't like to be politically activist, and that is the conservative mindset is going to have to address some of the monopolies and some of the, I mean, Twitter and Facebook and um, maybe even an Exxon, maybe even an Amazon, maybe, you know, some of these social media sites that have monopolies over uh, the public domain, the public square. Elon Musk said earlier this week that, you know, or maybe last week that Twitter is now the, uh, the de facto public square. And they're obviously censoring certain opinions and not allowing other opinions. Is it a time to address that? I mean, do we um, do we break up Twitter? Do we force you know revisit uh, what is it? Uh, two thirty, you know, section two thirty of the uh, some of the uh, it was really what they call the decency code. It's nothing to do with with decency, more about more about censorship. But these are issues that face America today, and we don't seem very serious in, in addressing or, or clearly understanding or or, or, or working through some of the private sector it's almost like the public sector has made their mind up that we're going to squeeze until we can't squeeze anymore i mean we're going to take as much as we can in the name of providing services that our constituency desire but at what cost
2: without regard to to what happens when you squeeze it all
0: well and and i think that's where we're headed rev when you look at the lack i mean we we've normalized one and a half percent gdp growth i mean there was a day 25 or 40 years ago, when we had one and a half, when we have a one and a half percentage quarter of economic growth, of GDP growth, we were staggered. We were floored. We were accustomed to three and a half, three and a quarter, two and three quarter, every now and then four, four and a half. I mean, we've had this weird number 6%, you know, with the first quarter of 2022, but that's because we shut the economy down for two years. I mean, for all practical purposes, the public sector shut the economy down. For a couple of years, and we better address some of these fundamental flaws we have in our nation. We're normalizing things that are unbelievably dangerous. We're normalizing the punitive nature of government. We're normalizing twenty um, percent, you know, taxes on. Uh, by, by that I mean property tax. I mean that's that, that is that that should be incredibly abnormal. I mean, whomever is in charge of raising taxes or not should be aware that. And commercial property for for example. I mean commercial property, we can argue 388 led down this road. It, we're still on this road. I mean, it doesn't matter if three eighty eight got us there nine ninety-nine got us there. I mean, we're there. We're dealing with it, and commercial property developers, and I sound like I sound like I'm kind of crying, you know, for something I'm involved in or something that affects my world. No, this is across the board. I've got one, two, three, four, or five texts from fellow businessmen and women who were basically saying, preach it. I mean, Ray Jones keep talking about things because nobody out there is advocating for this position and we're going to constrict growth in the private sector to the point that, that we are going to normalize 1% GDP growth. Why, why is 1% GDP growth normalized? Because bureaucrats and institutions have uh, kind of taken advantage of the, the prosperity of the, of the private sector and then we're creating more equilibrium. We are in a place if we're not careful, that we will live in a state capitalist economy. The economy, the terms and conditions of which we conduct economic activity will be government-driven. The government says you can or the government says you cannot. And I am someone who does not believe in zero oversight. Oversight has to be a part of monitoring or policing capitalism. But we look at the staggering numbers, um, $30 trillion of debt, one and a half percent quarter of GDP growth. And and we we've normalized that it doesn't freak us out any longer. We've um, desensitized ourselves from these realities.
2: How much different is that from socialism?
0: There's not a lot of difference. I mean, there's really and truly not a lot of difference in state capitalism and socialism. The, the 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 state capitalist model basically says we still have businesses, we still have free enterprise, but the handy the heavy hand of government will hold all those people accountable. And the state, the government, the institutions, the bureaucracies will decide what the rules and and, and kind of the um, the soil conditions of where the private sector operates. And we've got to revisit that. I and mean, we've got to fundamentally revisit it. I, I didn't intend to go down this road. But when Larry said the entrepreneur will always find a way, I don't know. I mean, there was a day in America I sincerely believe that. When Boudreaux said, if you divide all the wealth, the people that have it would have it again. The people that don't, don't. That's what America's designed to be. But but we've gotten to a place now we reward complacency and we penalize productivity. Not on the margins, not on the edge. That is a governing philosophy by and large. The most productive people are onerously burdened and, and penalized. The least productive are told it's not really your fault, so... I mean, think of this, Ref. I know what you got. The music's got to break, but think of this: during COVID, guess who small business small business men and women were competing with uh, for their jobs, for their workforce? The government. He'll pay you that much to cook. He'll pay you that much to, to do construction work. We'll pay you this much to stay home. Not only are the taxing and the regulations onerous, the government became your chief competitor <laughs> in the marketplace of employment. Wow. Wow. And we've normalized that, guys. Back in a minute. You know, because of this job, I read a lot. I read the academics at the Cato Institute. I read the Economist at the Brookings Institute. I care what they have to say. Their input matters to me. But at the end of the day, big government is expensive. I mean, it's unbelievably expensive. And when you start talking about universal health care and subsidized college and mandatory leave uh, for workers and other government Or generous government initiatives, um, they rarely mention the cost. They never discuss who will pay for all these proposals, and business does. I mean, by and large, business is what makes this country go. The majority of us work in a business. Some of us own businesses. Some are very profitable. Some are not so profitable. Some are not profitable at all and go out of business. But at the end of the day, big government is unbelievably expensive, and as we make all of these utopian offerings there's a cost associated and people who live where the rubber hits the road are affected or impacted more genuinely than an economist at oxford or a you, know, a think tank in Washington and its team of advisors and economists. I respect those people. I think they have a macro understanding of the economy, population trends and, and macroeconomics. But at the end of the day, when you start offering universal health care, when you start paying off student debt, when you start offering mandatory leave and paternal and maternal leave, um, some of these other, once I said. You, you didn't you, mention the the Green New Deal cost
2: in mean, regulations th- and money. Th-
0: there's a tremendous burden that places in the lap of the small business men and women, and they dig just as damn hard as they can, but it's hard. I mean, it's real hard. Let's go to the phone. Charles in Lamar. Morning, Charles. Good
6: morning, guys. We'll throw a couple of things at you this morning. First of all, I grew up in the PD. I left in 1970. I came back in 1993, 29 years ago. And I know things change in 29 years. But I walked into the city county complex on Irby Street to get a business license for my business. And I carried my BB&T checkbook because I was going to write a check because my business license in Salisbury was $75. And the business license in Florence was going to be $15,000. So... You know, times change, but there's that's just not competitive with some other areas. A second one reason is is because the the taxes, as you mentioned, Ken, um, they hit us pretty hard in in Spartanburg county there's there's one school district. Uh, in Florence, we have five. There's millions, maybe tens of millions of dollars in waste every year just because of that so um i i want to throw that out there one more thing before i get off the phone today's election day everybody thinks the election's over with and everybody thinks they know who won nobody's won unless people get out and vote so don't forget to vote
0: thank you charles appreciate that good hearing from you and i said yesterday and i'll i'll say again make no assumptions you know what the score is this morning at seven o'clock it's zero to zero I mean, it's not going to stay that way long, but don't take anything for granted. As a Republican who did not support Mike Rickenbaugh in the primary, go vote today for Mike Rickenbaugh. I plead you, don't take this for granted. Crazy things can happen. They have happened. Don't let it happen today. Don't let anybody say, hey, can you believe what happened in Florence? The Republicans had this hotly contested primary. One good candidate beat another good candidate. And then they slept through the general and a Democrat won that seat. That can't happen, guys. And, and you got to be careful. Go vote Mike Rickenbaugh. Um, I think we can do that. Can we, Ref? Well, I might have done it now whether I can or not. Let's go to the phone. <laughs> Here is Breeze. morning, Breeze.
7: Hey, guys. Um, you know, Ken, I don't have a doctorate degree, but I know two people that do. And I was wondering if they could define for me the definition of a woman. And also, I was wondering if they thought a man could have an abortion. Because if we can't fight, fight a woman, and we can't define a man, if you can't define a woman, then that and then goes the next thing. Well, how can a woman have an abortion if you can't define a woman from a man? But I wonder if they could define a woman. I had a fellow yesterday. He's a retired a heart surgeon worth millions and millions of dollars. My wife let it slip that we we're going to a political event see Herschel Walker, I guess. And he goes, you realize how crazy he is? And I overheard it, and I said, have you look at the people that you voted for? And you're talking about this guy being crazy? So my next question, too, was, I said, at what point will people realize, and I'm more and more firmly convinced, that the Republicans and the Democrats are doing the same thing differently to us. But it's all the same thing. The Republicans are betraying us. And the Democrats, I guess, are betraying them, and they are betraying betraying all of us. And I wonder if the professors thought there would be a time when all of us realize that we're in this together and being equally screwed by our government. and And when will people realize that the government, whether it be Democrat or Republican, is not our God. They're not our savior. I mean, and, and realize that everything that you look back on it, everything that has really been bad that has happened in this country for the past hundred years, have been because of mismanagement of our government. Everything that's happening now, and I say mismanagement, maybe it was, maybe, again, I, begin to, I really do believe it's done on purpose. But what would it take for the professor, yeah, well, Scott, for us to say, you know what, kid, I believe we're in this together. I believe we're being totally screwed by the Democrats and totally screwed by the Republicans. And, you know, unless we're going to be purported commissars of the political party, we're all screwed.
0: We've got to take a break, Breeze. Thank you. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. reverend can we remind our listeners of our intent? I mean, we've contacted the Oscars. I have people there. <laughs> and we've suggested that Mike Tyson be named host of next year's Oscars. And they've agreed yeah. that it made plenty of sense. Rev said, how about Rock? There's a difference in Rock, or The Rock, and Iron Mike. You know what the difference is? Rock play fights. <laughs> Iron Mike really fights. He, he hits for yeah, real. Yeah, I mean, he hits for real. There's a YouTube video, Mike Tyson Deranged, and um, it's interesting how little courage people have when he's in a bad mood. You know what I mean? Law enforcement <laughs> inside the ring, and they're like, hey, it's my job to secure these premises but I don't want any part of him. I mean, I, just, for the life of me, I don't want to go near, near that man. You know what that's called? That's not called being um, cowardly. That's called being smart. smart. That's being a smart man. <laughs> I like my teeth exactly where they are, um in my mouth. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Rock's a big bad guy, but he play fights. Mike Tyson's a big bad guy. Not really that big a guy. I mean, he's a big guy,
2: but not. But you just have to wonder, if, if The Rock was hosting the Oscars the other night, if there would have been a slap,
0: well, sure they would have staged it as they did to begin with. Oh. we we agreed that he was slapped. I mean, there's no doubt there yeah. was contact made. I think the slow mo proves it. It does. I mean, it was not a um a Batman and Robin, you know, a play fight. I yeah. mean, it's not you Pow, know a boom. stuntman man rolling with Bat. the uh, yeah. I mean, slap. it was it was not that. But I still believed it was staged. And we've also established that alopecia is a uh, a hair loss disease. Acapulco is a city in Mexico and acapella acapella because I think I said earlier acapella yeah acapella acapella. is singing without music so for you um language challenge (laughs) listeners out there um, (laughs) all three words
2: sound very similar
0: well and I go back to the. we got our professors here and they don't have anything to do so they hang around with us for a long time (laughs) Um, so so here's the um here's the confusion of words amphibious and ambidextrous I mean I had a buddy of mine it was like well, one means you can shoot with both hands. Let's talk about basketball. I said, Yeah. And one means it'll go in the water and land. So we 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 took took thirty minutes, but we finally got amphibious and ambidextrous. But I've told the story, I told it earlier this morning. The professors may enjoy this. So I got a buddy of mine. And um I was twenty three when I got married. Uh, we had a kid at t- I was twenty five. Country people get married early. We have kids, you know how that is. I mean, we don't know any better. Um we're a bit illiterate when it comes to, to how we live our lives, conduct ourselves. So so the, the good old boys of my hometown, all of us got married at about the same time. We started having kids at about the same time. And this one guy that was, um, I'm absolutely challenged, he was dumb. I mean, he's just a dumb old guy. And um, he came to us one day, and we are talking about kids and having kids, and he said, hey, man, um, they're going to seduce my wife Wednesday.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I said, I think you got the wrong word there, bro. And he said, no, I'm serious. I mean, they're going to, um, this is when they that they, they medically you know, they, they medically stimulate the woman to having a baby. And um, I said, no, man, seduce means you don't want a doctor seducing your wife. <laughs> you want the doctor to induce your wife. You got the wrong word here. He said, no, I'm sure of it. I mean, i sure is seduce. I said, okay. Um and that'll be the tragic end of a marriage if a, if another man starts seducing your wife, you're going to have um as Chris Rock says, excuse me, as Will Smith says, entanglement. No. Cuz he's a Scientologist and he says, you know, my wife is with other is with other men as long as there's not further entanglement. I have no idea what that, mean? Uh, what that means. Well, I mean, they're Scientologists. It can mean a myriad of things, a multitude of things um far into the way you and I would expect those things. So yeah, um seduce and induce are two completely different words <laughs> for you young fathers to be if the doctor is going to induce your wife all good that's okay that's that's fairly common if the yeah. doctor's trying to seduce your wife call mike tyson <laughs> call mike tyson he'll take care of that potential problem uh for you hey got our two professors here dr scott coppin history chair of francis marion university dr will bolt history professor with a subspecialty in
8: Andrew Jackson. Yeah, there you go. Baby. There
0: you go. Okay, l- I want to make an argument, <laughs> and um, and, and we can agree and disagree, and we can kind of kick the can, the proverbial can of this debate down the road. Do we have a call. We do. Okay, let's get to the phone. Then we'll uh, you guys get on time. Oh yeah. Okay, they're they're good on time. Cocky Mike. Hey Mike. Hey. Hey guys. Uh, I didn't know that you had
3: the, the, the guys coming on. I would have hung up. Um, but what I was gonna say about the will, I don't. I no longer think it was staged. I did yesterday when I watched it the first time. But I watched her But here's the thing. Todd Hardy, coroner in Darlington, made a good post yesterday about this saying that he, it, this is criminal domestic violence and it, he should have been arrested because of what this send, the message that this sends out to uh, young black men all over the place. It's okay if you go up and slap somebody and uh, because that was just pure violence. You could tell if it was staged if you were to put Will Will Smith in handcuffs and hauled him off and criminally charged him and then Chris Rock sues him. That's how you'll find
0: out whether it's staged or not. So you guys talk to you later, man. Okay, thank you, my man. I'm 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 staying where I am. I think it's staged. I think the Oscars are so poorly watched the attendance excuse me, the attendance is there because there's always important movie stars who want to gather with other important movie stars and celebrate their narcissism. Um, maybe they'll invite Donald Trump one day, and he'll be, for the first time in his life, not the most narcissistic man in the room. There, there's a chance that we, that we get—that's what we should do. Let Trump go to the Oscars, and that may be the first time in his life that he's not the most narcissistic man or woman in that uh, in that particular room. I, I want to make an argument to these guys. I mean, they, they're—we'd um, like to have these— intellectually stimulating conversations. Um, I know the two of you know the difference in induce and seduce. And I expect that both of you could define a woman if I if I chose
9: to ask. Am I right, Dr. Coppin? It's much more complicated than I It's think, not complicated well, yes, it, at all. If we went by Breeze's definition, I dated a woman who had a hysterectomy. Does that mean, therefore, she's not a woman anymore? If we use his definition, she's not. I can't go there. It's this
0: is satellite radio, and we would get thrown off the air if I got as colorful as I'd want to get on some of the. It's it, you know you know good and well. <laughs> That's about as country as I've said today. You know good and damn well that <laughs> there's uh, the the woman up for the U.S. Supreme Court should be able to answer the question: Define a woman. I mean, that, that, that's inexcusable that, that a lady and I understand the gotcha moment I, but I mean we've, the, the history of Supreme Court nominations and advising consent has had these gotcha moments in those um did she hurt her chances by choosing to not define uh, what a woman is no
9: okay she's still gonna get she's still gonna get confirmed how
0: many Republicans will support her
9: uh not many one yeah, or two maybe the yeah. females uh probably yeah are they but really we, women
0: do we know <laughs> <laughs> if Susan Collins has had a hysterectomy, is she no longer the well, female depe-
9: senator? It depends what definition you're using. Okay. Here, if I guess.
0: Lisa Murkowski has had a hysterectomy, is she no longer the female senator well, from again, Alaska? Well,
9: it depends on the definition you're using here. But to me, still a woman. Okay. Could Andrew Jackson <laughs> define a woman
8: if he were um, a nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, the the nominee had a had an easy way out. There's a famous saying. 1964, the case of Jacobelius versus Ohio, related to pornography. When the Supreme Court Potter Stewart said, "I know it when I see it," and so I think most Americans would probably be, uh, yeah. I open my eyes and like, yeah, that's that's a woman right there. That's a that's not a woman right over there. So that would have been an easy, that would have been a layup for, it and it would have been a good little little symmetry to invoke a a great. Supreme Court quote.
0: But, Dr. Bolt, would you not agree that it was probably sound strategy for the Republicans to pursue some of the cultural issues
8: oh, sure, that, yeah. that it appears the left has gotten out of the mainstream on? No, you, you, you know how this is going to end. I mean, once Manchin never came out and said he was opposed to it, neither did Senator So you know, it was a slam dunk. She was going to get through if, even if it took Harris with a tie breaking vote. So, I mean, well, you you, you got to be careful not to. But overplay. you could
0: argue that Harris can't cast a tie breaking
8: vote. In a Supreme Court nomination, we've never had it before. Correct, it's, it's it's uncharted waters, and so it would be a whole be up to the parliamentarian. Wouldn't uh, wouldn't trade place with that person for all the whiskey in Ireland, uh, if if it came to that. If they made the wrong decision there, uh, they'd be looking on the they'd be on the breadlines. But no, I mean certainly the Republicans just have to be careful not to overplay their hand. And again, like you said, she'll probably get three, four, not as many as Obama's appointments. Uh, Senator Graham voted for both of Obama's appointments. Uh, he's been kind of quiet. Uh, I think Graham one. will be a no. So this time around, I, if you read the tea leaves, I would say yes, or he'll be a no as well. And again, right, probably 52, 53. Maybe there'll be a surprise somebody at the last minute who says, "Well, this is historic. I want to be on the right side of this moving forward." But right? She should have she should have a few votes to spare.
0: Should she answer the question? I mean, is that, is that a fair? I mean, obviously, it's a provocative question. It's meant for the political motivations. But should she did she did she goof up by
9: not answering at least making an attempt to answer the question well but all all these justices are asked questions how would you how would you rule in a certain situation and it doesn't matter who they are i mean amy coming Bear did the same thing i have to see what the case is about before i can say how i'm going to rule so of course they're going to avoid answering the question And uh, I think that's the smart thing to do, because otherwise what you're doing is you're you're saying, no matter what the situation, this is how I'm going to rule. You have to base it on case by case. And how many Republicans do you think vote in favor? Oh, again, maybe two or three at most. I think it's the two women. I
0: mean, that, that may or may not, not be women, depending on whether they've had his history. I don't know measure. what Mitt
9: Romney's going to do. Um, I think Romney
0: votes no. I think prob- he's already prob- publicly said he's voting no. Yeah.
9: Well, and it's very likely that it'll go that way. But um, again, I don't probably two or three Republicans. If Romney
0: votes no, makes me want to vote yes, <laughs>
9: <laughs> <laughs> just
0: to be just to be on the opposite side of um of Mitt Romney. I want to go to this for a second. You guys are historians, and you would have a better understanding of this than I would. But I've read a lot about it in recent days, trying to better understand. Um, the the involvement America is expected to have, the involvement we have, the the sentiment of the American public in regards to Russia, Ukraine. Uh, the president went over to Brussels and said a lot of things he didn't mean to say, and they have cleaned up the best way they need to, to clean it up. And we'll get to that in just a second. Kauffman's nodding his head. Kauffman is not as intrigued. By um by Biden as you formerly were I mean well, well I mean I mean venture I mean just express yourself my son um <laughs> what 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 is the problem you have I mean you're disappointed in Joe Biden I don't Oh yes, words in your very. mouth but you're very disappointed in Joe uh, and, Biden a
9: number of reasons number one is um I don't see where the messaging overall is regarding his administration I mean this Build Back Better what happened to that message it just disappeared so there's no vision. He seems to have lost the ability to lead a party that is at war with itself. Uh, that's problematic. But this comment he made over in Poland that, we, that Putin has got to go, there, there's a saying in diplomacy. The art of diplomacy is telling someone to go to hell and have them look forward to taking the trip. Um, all Biden was saying was go to hell. That's not how you do this kind of thing, because all that's going to do is it's going to strengthen Putin's position at home. As far as I'm concerned, he can now use this as part of his propaganda at home to rally people behind him. Uh, and, and it muddies the waters. It takes away from the, the gains that Biden had made in promoting NATO unity. And now all of a sudden you have this cleanup effort that's being that's that's taking place. Biden has a habit of making these gaffes. And now he's doubling down and saying, well, I was morally outraged. I don't care if you're morally outraged. You don't say stuff like that.
0: Is this a lack of discipline, Dr. Bolt, or is this an example of cognitive
8: decline? I don't know about that, but you could almost make the argument that uh, he is playing on a different level. He's playing 3D chess. He keeps saying off these unscripted moments. He's going off off script. And then the, the other bureaucrats have to clean it up. You never know where's the where's the real message. I mean, what do you which way which, which direction is there the United States There might be States some genius from? in this. Exactly. Right? You you've got you, you're keeping your adversaries they're off tilt around their toes. They don't know exactly we're up to. I don't think they're that clever, but you know, maybe you, you, the that argument could be made. And again, it's just another blunder. It's another example of the gang that can't shoot straight. They just they just can't get their act together. They're not they're not singing from the same hymnal.
0: And thus, <laughs> Scott doesn't this play into the the narrative of putin convincing the russian people that all the west is interested in is regime change oh, sure this is not about ukraine this is not about western value this is trying to abolish the
9: the country of russia from the planet earth exactly i mean what putin has so far has been talking about is how we are being encircled in fact his his press secretary was just just recently said we're being encircled by the west and now putin can say see see what the west is up to here and Biden, Biden can, can say, well, I really wasn't talking about regime change here. But again, it's playing into Putin's hands. You don't say stuff like that. Can either of you agree? And I'll start with you, Dr. Bolt. I mean, there, there are recent
0: reports of Russian army stalling, um, not progressing, having certain issues, appearing to be not as proficient as we expected that. Is it time to put on the table the chance that Ukraine— with
8: further NATO support, wins this war. I think it's yeah, possibly at this point. No, nobody thought we were going to be here. This was just going to be a quick over. Russia would be in and out in just a matter of days or weeks. We're still talking about this more than more than a month later. And again, nobody was backing Ukraine at the beginning, but this is what a good leader does, right? The the tactical situation has changed. Take advantage of it. So again, we, uh, the Soviets helped contributed to our malaise in Vietnam. We gave them their own Vietnam and Afghanistan. Why not? i continue to drag this out and funnel whatever resources we can to the Ukrainians. Yeah. So, so
0: Scott, Ukraine could, could beat Russia in this war? Well, I think it depends how you want to define what victory is. I mean, the country's tore all to hell. It is. I mean, the country's blown to smithereens. So I mean, that's it's hard to say, wow, look, we won. You know, when your nation is torn apart and your buildings are smoldering, you preserved your nation's capital. I mean, that seems to be something they've done a, a decent enough job of. But, but what does Ukraine victory look like in your perspective? Well, from your perspective? That's the,
9: that's the question, and one of the theories is that what the Russians want to do is establish a situation similar to what we have in Korea, where you have a, a portion of the Ukraine that is now occupied by Russian forces, uh, which would include the port of Mariupol, uh, which the Ukrainians don't want to lose. And then you have the rest of Ukraine. So the Ukrainians end up losing a sizable portion of their own country to the Russians, which is now occupied by well, – obviously occupied by Russia. Is that victory – well, I don't know. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure the Ukrainians would agree that was victory. I think they would see that as, as a terrible defeat, especially to lose even more of your territory to the Russians, even if you have preserved the majority of your country. I want to take a break. I'm going to come back, Rev, and touch on
0: this. Um, the, the need to recognize that America's unipolar moment has passed. I mean, we were talking off the air about this. This gets a bit academic um, and very interesting to me. Gene Kirkpatrick had a lot to say in 1990 when it was obvious the Soviet Union was in its demise, in its um, last days. She made some comments that I think are very relevant to the conversation we're having today. Back in just a minute. Well, let's go to class for a second. Perfect time to go to class. I got two professors here, Dr. Will Bolt, Dr. Scott Koppin, both at Francis Marion University. Thanks to Francis Marion for loaning some of their valuable assets, Dr. Bolt and Dr. Kopman, to this feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance. So George H.W. Bush, and his administration, um, in its defense planning, because I read some of these notes from 1992. Paul Wolfowitz did the majority of um, of transcribing these notes. Suggested that the primary goal of U.S. national security was to prevent the reemergence of a new rival. I mean that that would be the Bush doctrine, very interventionist in nature. Prevent the reemergence of a new rival. Um, one of the architects for winning the Cold War was um, Reagan's U.S. ambassador, Jean Kirkpatrick. She had a very different view of this. Uh, Bear with me for a second, professors. Um, She said, and and I think both of you would agree, she was one of the um, intellectual advisors during the Cold War. She gave the uh, former President Reagan a lot of advice on what she would do or not do or how to do this or how to do that. Um, She was not blinded by the hubris um, that that I would argue some of the Bush doctrinists were uh, when the Berlin well, when the Berlin Wall fell, she wrote an article for the National Interest suggesting that the United States should become a normal country in the post Cold War Cold War world, and that meant not pursuing mystical missions that reach beyond the constitutional requirement to protect the nation's vital national security interests. Specifically, she wrote that the United States should not devote itself. To establishing democracy around the world she derided this notion and the conduct of u.s foreign policy elitist by saying that these high-minded terms of internationalism are will lead to our demise instead of focusing on concrete u.s national security interests did gene kirkpatrick win or did wolfowitz win
9: dr kaufman i think the debate is still on okay um First of all, this debate, there are two ways to look at this thing. First is of, it a fair debate? Oh, I think it is. Okay. Um, this debate over where America's interests exist has been going on for, for many, many years. We can go back and look at the George Kennan, the famous so, Sovietologist who said the United States, in trying to prevent the spread of communism, should not try to prevent it everywhere. but We should focus only on certain important parts of the world, certain parts of the world that are important to the United States, Latin America, Western Europe as examples. Uh, Harry Truman, however, a contemporary of Kennan, said, "No, we have to contain communism all over the world, no matter where it is, uh, to protect the United States." So this debate over where do our interests lie is one issue. Um, the other issue, the one that you're bringing up here, is uh, ties into something Gene Kirkpatrick said in 1979. In 1979, she wrote that there's a difference between authoritarian countries and totalitarian countries. Authoritarian nations are ones that can become democratic over time. They're non-communist, right-wing countries. Totalitarian countries are communist, left-wing states that have no chance of becoming uh, democratic over time. And those are the ones we need to most worry about. Those are the ones we need to defend ourselves against. In looking at current events, I have to wonder if Kirkpatrick would say, "You know what it is? It is in our vested interests to defend Ukraine because we have to stand up to the totalitarian nation that is the, that is Russia."
0: Dr. Bolt, you would agree that since the end of the Cold War, America spent a lot of time intervening. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, whether we agree or not, I mean, we sure. have these um, debates politically and um, between the parties and between factions within within the parties. But but at the end of the Cold War, we became I mean we were the preeminent superpower on the planet no question about it there was no larry bird and magic johnson (laughs) there was only larry bird or magic johnson um there there was no measuring stick so to speak um did we abuse that privilege as the lone superpower
8: probably right if we could go back in time right to the to the early 1990s we might want to say well maybe we need to recalibrate rethink about but i the wolfowitz doctrine if that's what you want to call it for was very very good to us in the 1990s. I mean, who who among us right now wouldn't want to go back to the 1990s with a very robust economy, I mean, sustained economic growth, gas gas in New York State for a dollar twenty five a gallon, uh, in many other parts of the country in the 1990s, less than a dollar. You know, I remember as as a kid in the in the 1990s, ten dollars filled up the entire tank in the car. So yes, yeah, so this idea, this messianic vision of the United States, had, and again, as my esteemed colleague pointed out. Again, what we're doing is fostering democracy. This goes all the way back to the start of the 20th century. This is Woodrow Wilsonism. There's been a long, long precedent. And of course, right, sort of there have been repercussions for this. Some individuals don't want or just just aren't ready uh, for mom baseball, apple pie, and American democracy. Some people don't want it at all and certainly don't want it forced down their throats. And so, again, the past 20 years, we've sort of been dealing with that. But again, now we've sort of seen sort of a, a resurgence in the United States as the world's policeman in Ukraine. And again, perhaps, are we seeing a, a big fundamental sea shift? Are guys like Kaufman and I, 20, 30 years from now, when we look back to 2022, saying, hey, this is when the United States charted uh, a brand new path uh, in foreign policy? So uh, the last word's certainly yet to be written.
0: Dr. Kaufman, what, what do you hear when Kirkpatrick
9: says high minded internationalism? Um i think again i have to look at the whole context sure. of her of her talk but i think there's instead there's, of focusing on concrete us national security issues i mean that's i mean that's not the entire right. text but that's the senate i think there's that ties into another debate idealism versus realism okay this idealism of that the, everybody wants to become democratic that if we to turn to my esteemed colleague's point, Woodrow Wilson's idea that a world be, a world based on democratic values will be peaceful and stable forever. You will not have w- wars if everybody's a democracy. And this idea continues to perpetuate itself. Um, but but realism says that that's, that's not the way to go here. The fact of the matter is not all nations are going to head down a democratic path. And even if they do begin heading that down that direction, it doesn't mean it's going to take hold, and it doesn't mean that their definition of democracy will be the same as ours. So we have to look at it from a realistic point of view and take that into account. So I think what she's arguing is this high-minded idea that everybody will become democratic, that it's easy to implant democracy all around the world. We're really fooling ourselves if we is believe it, that. Is it our obligation to fetter out or ferret out totalitarian governments around the world? No. Uh, we cannot be the world's policemen, um, but unfortunately, I think that that vision is still there. Uh, look at the latest budget that 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 uh, that Joe Biden just promoted proposed $810 dollars in defense spending. Yeah, about a
0: hundred billion dollar increase from last fiscal yeah. year.
9: Yeah, uh, I think I think the idea is still very much out there.
0: Let, let me ask you this, Doctor Bolt. I'll shift gears and go here for a second. Um, it's easy for us to say that expansionism is in the Russians' DNA. I mean, it's who they are. Doctor Thigpen sat where you guys sit, and we talk about those blankety blank Russians and their expansionist tendencies. Is it fair to argue that that the United States of America has intervention in its veins? I mean, we seem to be far more intervening than other countries around the world. Maybe our capacity is is why why we do that. But but is that is that a fair counting or a fair criticism?
8: No, it's we've we've certainly done it uh, ourselves. We've uh, gotten in bed. We've gotten a little cozy with more some- than
0: others. Is there are there any historical <laughs> precedents of nations who try to align other nations to suit their fancy?
8: This is these events. Our intervention is not taking place in a vacuum. I mean, certainly we're protecting economic interest. But again, in in the context of the Cold War, I'm going to prop up a friendly dictator just so you don't go, you don't revert revert to communism. I right? am going back to this idea of containment and the old domino theory, whatever uh, point you want to look at. So yes, we have sort of a a checkered past, and if we criticize the Russians, then, uh, hey, it is the pot calling the kettle black. But again, there is this great goal of the United States. I mean, this is where Ronald Reagan, right, the great shining city on a hill. And we've, we've got to, if, if somebody doesn't step up in the world's hour of need to preserve democracy, if it's not the United States of America, the Brits aren't going to do it anymore, certainly not the Frenchies. It's got to be somebody.
0: Now, to copman why do we not seem to be so interested in the the human tragedy and atrocities in the south sudan or mozambique or yemen or ethiopia i mean that war rages around the world nearly at all times i mean if, if this were about human atrocities why does america decide to intervene in certain places and, and not in others
9: vested interests i think it's so this it, is economic it, it is it, political it, it it well if we look at the history of american interventionism Okay. There are really four reasons why the United States intervenes in other, in other countries. Economic reasons, national security reasons, domestic political reasons, fear that, for instance, if I don't act, I'm going to lose the next election, and then humanitarian concerns. But generally, those four reasons, humanitarian concerns, are at the bottom. They're the lowest consideration. Uh, those other three all, almost always take precedent. Actually, I, I should say always take precedent. and And so that plays a role, but also... Where are we talking about? How important is this country to our national interest? Because really what it comes down to is self-interest here. Okay, but but Dr. Bolden, here's where we're headed. How, how do we get
0: to decide that our national interest takes priority over the will of the people of Russia? Hypothetically, let's say, um, in 2018, Vladimir Putin got reelected. 67% of the country voted. He got 77% of the vote. Okay, we're laughing because we don't believe it's a legitimate election. Well, I mean, newsflash, 47% of Americans don't believe we had. A legitimate election so there's similarities here Um, why do we get to decide because of the alignment of our of our interests and I I totally agree with dr. Kaufman humanitarian is an excuse for why we do certain things Uh, human atrocity is something we like to say because we're that shining city on a hill but but why do we get to decide who governs Russia or not why do we even believe it's our responsibility to decide who governs Russia or not?
8: No, it's, a, it's, it's an excellent point. And again, you, you talk about the humanitarian. When you think about uh, uh, Somalia uh, early on, 1993, a uh, humanitarian effort that sadly uh, went, went south really quickly for the United States. And anyway, we've kind of washed our hands uh, of that moving forward. And again, this is just, again, remember, we weren't backing Ukraine at the very, very onset. You know, we were just kind of watching this, and then suddenly once we realized, hey, this is a viable cause, they're they they're standing up, only then did we kind of swing into action. And again, this is a chance to kind of weaken uh, an old geopolitical rival and also an emerging economic power for the United States of America. So again, if we can kind of bleed them dry, just kind of give them a body blow, if you will, embarrass Putin, again, weaken him politically at home perhaps plant the seeds that may not germinate overnight but will could potentially lead to regime change again I'm sure this is what the policy makers at the Pentagon uh, the guys in the think tanks are thinking about right some 5 10 years down the road
0: okay I believe this and we'll conclude with this question this will be a comment question I believe that our excitement for intervention has led to our decline I think we're less of a superpower today than we were at the end of the Cold War because we've Taken too many opportunities to intervene in affairs that aren't in the concrete interest of the American national security um, via the Constitution. Having said that, we're still a superpower, but we are a superpower. I think in dramatic decline. Do you think we're still a superpower, and are we a superpower in decline?
9: I think we are superpower still. Uh, are we in decline? That's a that's a harder question to answer. I mean, if we look at, for instance, America's cultural impact around the world. If we look at the fact that, uh, for instance, the dollar is still used to value oil, the, the power of the dollar. Today. Today. Uh, Maybe not we, tomorrow, I, but today. I, I think we are still very much a power to be reckoned with. And we do have enormous military might. That, too, is something that we have to take into consideration. Um, the question is, can we continue, for instance, with regard to military spending, can we continue down that road? And, and be able to deal with these debts we're incurring as a result of this increased spending? Or is there a time going to come where the chickens are going to come home to roost and we're going to have to say, you know what, we have to make cuts somewhere.
0: And Dr. Bolt, that's my point. We're spending $861 billion on our defense budget, and we can argue whether we should or should not or what is it's the, the proper accounting number. But, but when Coppin's saying this, my mind's going, where does that money come from? It's borrowed. Yep. I mean, it's borrowed. If we had money in the bank and we spent $861 billion on the strongest military in the history of mankind... And you know we we have that much money in the bank, but we're borrowing we're printing sure, that right? money we're not even borrowing the money it's I mean, our let, kids level our with, grandkids I mean, are going to we'll, have to pay for it but let's yeah. level with the american people i mean if we spend 861 billion dollars on american military spending this year we're not borrowing that money there's no ability we'll ever have to pay that money back we're simply printing that money and the fed is purchasing that government yeah. debt so we're playing a shell game here how can yeah. a superpower play that game and get away
8: with it no no it's and this is we've we've talked about this many many times on this program, right, and, and as he eloquently said, right, at some point, sadly, someday, there is going to be an accounting. But back to the the, the original question, are we uh, still a superpower? I think if we wanted to right now, we could plant the American flag over anywhere in the world, probably except in Beijing, China. The, the the failure of Russia in reoccurring has certainly shown that uh, they're no longer a big boy on the block. They're no longer a threat. And so, again, we certainly have the might if we ever wanted to, and not that we we ever will uh but we are certainly a a, stro- a a preeminent superpower
0: interesting thanks to both thank of you, you we'll you. take a break kept them two segments today rev give them their paycheck while they're heading out of the uh <laughs> out of the door we'll do good a stuff. good high five uh, yeah not a slap in the face but a good a good high five thanks to both of you thank you, thank you. we'll take a break we'll be back in just a minute Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number let's go to the phone linda. someone's there
2: yeah it's linda in sumter she's listening to wdxy good morning linda
10: good morning everyone how are y'all
2: we're good good morning
10: okay well since i don't walk out the house and lose my little list this morning i um the will smith situation i'm gonna go along with you and say it was staged i can't believe a man would slap a man i think he did this for his wife because she rolled her eyes but a man hits with his fist not you don't know, slap no one that that's being a bee so that's it our, our next issue is Tom Cruise, and I guess I have to ask you this question. Is Tom Cruise, not Tom Cruise, Ted Cruise, is he white or Hispanic? Because apparently he was called a white man, and I think it's Roseanne would lose her show because she thought a black woman, she didn't know this, black, this woman was black. I think someone should be held accountable
0: for calling Ted Cruz a white man when he's (laughs) not. Thank you, Linda. Appreciate that. See, I think there's a debate about whether Cruz is Hispanic or Cuban. No, I think he's Hispanic. Uh, Rubio's Cuban-American. I understand the gray area there. Is he Hispanic? Is he American? Uh, What percentage Hispanic is he? What percentage American is he? What was his great-grandmother? I I understand the the sliding scale of um, being Hispanic and being American. But, but being a woman or being a man, I mean, to me, that's that not confusing at all. I just heard it was complicated. Let well, I mean, uh, Dr. Dr. Kaufman said, said it's complicated yeah. about hysterectomies. Um, I guess if you are a lady out there you've had a hysterectomy, you may or may not be a woman. But I mean, fair to Kaufman, he said, you know, according to Breeze's definition, that was not his definition. He said, according to Breeze's um, definition, it when we when we start having these debates, and I'll level with you guys, some of this is the ingredients that lead me to believe that we're no longer a superpower. I mean, we're proposing, I mean, our Senate is advising and consenting uh, a woman to be on the highest court in, and I guess the most respected court in the world. And for, she was asked, yeah, for a, asked, lifetime. Yeah, lifetime, for a appointment. lifetime appointment, and she's asked whether or not she can find a woman, and she says she can't because she's not a biologist. That's unbelievable to me. That, that, but but if you, I mean, I always talk about the, the financial matters of America, and I complain about, you know, how much it costs business and how much we pay in, in taxes and what percentage of your income or your revenue goes to X, Y, or Z. That is devastating for the economy. But but some of this cultural matter, it, it really insists or, or, or requires us to contemplate whether or not we're in decline. I mean, we're a nation that had a lady appear before a Senate um, hearing this week or last week, and refused to answer whether she could define a woman or not. I but mean, it we not makes it more interesting
2: because the president said he was only going to nominate a black woman
0: to that position. Right. That's what he said so on you the campaign trail. To be
2: able to identify,
0: and I guess a woman he's a man case. of his word. Yes. I mean, I don't know. How she must be, be a woman. But I mean, I don't know how you make that deal. Well, I mean, you know how you make that deal: political expediency. You need African American females to come out and vote. Um, because we know that Trump did much better with African American males, not African American females. So, you know, if you win that subset of voters overwhelmingly, the more of those that come out, you're getting, you know, let's say a bunch of African American females, Trump gets, or, or Biden gets 95% of the vote. I mean, that, you know, it's worth going there. I mean, it's in the name of um, getting elected, it's worth making that deal with a constituency. But. When you when you when you make a pledge or a promise on the campaign trail that your Supreme Court nomination, if given the opportunity, is going to be an African American female, to me you've demonstrated an unwillingness to be fair and impartial. Period. I mean, you you made it known that white females, white males, black males, African Amer- excuse me, Hispanic males, Cuban American males, nobody is going to be considered for this appointment except an African American female. But I mean, that's racist. I mean, that's the definition of being racist. You know, you you, you, white men and, and African-American men, you don't qualify. Because once again, I've made a deal. And the deal I've made, it's probably the most racist deal the president has ever made in the name of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, if I'm elected, if you African-American women will help me get elected, I'll put somebody who looks like you on the U.S. Supreme Court, whether they're the best qualified or not. And really and truly, that's probably where we need to end up. Are we going to put the best people on this court, the most qualified, most competent, smartest, brightest, most diligent, or are we going to try to get a diverse court that may or may not be of qualified and competent people? That's a country in decline. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I'm going to go back to this unipolar moment. I mean, do you understand, Rev? You see what I'm saying? I mean, in other words, um, the the misguided foreign policy of recent American presidents. Let me rephrase that. That's unfair. What I perceive to be the misguided foreign policy of Barack Obama, uh, of George W. Bush, of George H. W. Bush, of of um, I mean, Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, John Kerry as Secretary of State. It appears to me that the majority of these um, internationalists, globalists, believe that we are still operating in this uh, unipolar moment. And the unipolar moment comes as a result of the demise of the Soviet Union, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And for a, what, a generation, for 30-some-odd years we've lived, um, unchallenged. In other words, Larry Bird's not had a Magic, Magic's not had a Larry Bird. There's not been a rival out there of which you measure yourself against. Um, And when you don't have a rival, you begin to believe that there are no limits to American power and might. Um, Our resources could never be spread too thin. Um, We can never prioritize um, according to... A finite amount of resources. I mean, if we got to deal with um, with Russia, China, and Iran simultaneously, we just got to deal with the Axis of Evil. I mean, Russia, China, Iran—that's the unipolar mindset. No matter what the challenges may or may not be, we have the capacity. I mean, if we've got to print another trillion dollars to buy more weapons, we'll print another trillion dollars and buy more weapons. The insanity of that, to me, is. A little bit of the Lippmann curve. I said I said it earlier this morning. I'll say it again. Um, the excuse me, not the Lippmann curve. That'd be the Laffler curve, the Lippmann gap. Walter Lipman wrote extensively about a nation's commitments and a nation's capacities in 1943, post Second World War. Uh, the dollar became the currency of preference. Why? Because Europe was obliterated. I mean, we were kind of sort of the last man standing, and um, and that really led to the industrial revolution and the, 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 I don't know, Rev, the American century or the second half of the American century being about peace, prosperity, and uh, kind of the American way, and we've lived since 1991 in a kind of a unipolar moment. I mean, we've never been threatened. When when the Soviet Union, when Mr. Gorbachev tearing down this wall was spoken, we had no rival. I mean, we were convinced that China was going to um, give up its socialist and state capitalist ways, what? In exchange for liberties and freedoms and embrace. I mean, this is to some degree they have and give the Chinese a lot of credit. They figured out a way to run a communist country with everybody wearing polo shirts and drinking a lot of everybody, but the, uh, the affluent in China, You know, the I guess the Chinese working class um, have managed to live a, a pretty Western existence despite living in a, a communist nation but but paul wolfowitz and i think kaufman said the wolfowitz doctrine is what we'll call everything here it basically said that the the u.s national security policy moving forward even at the end of the cold War, needed to be identify re-emerging threats and deal with those re-emerging threats accordingly to me that's say um a very political way of saying expansionism i mean if we if, if our if our objectives, as a, uh, as a new, uh, kind of the U.S. national security policy is to prevent the reemergence of a new rival. That's, I mean, that, that reeks of expansionism. Am I wrong? I mean, it has to. So Reagan leaves office. We, we conclude the Reagan revolution. George H.W. Bush ushers in a more, a far less populist strain of conservatism, A a more country club conservative party. You would agree to that. Mm. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. the, the George H.W. Bush. But the reason he didn't win his second term, I would argue, is he didn't continue with the political energy that was um, kind of the wind in the sails of the Reagan revolution. Similar to Trump, but dissimilar. I mean, similar to Trump in that there was an army of people who bought into an ideology. In Trump's case, there's an army who buys into a, a political principle. It's not so much an ideology as much as it is kind of a raw emotion of I mean, the populism. In other words, Reagan would have been conservative populism. Trump would be populist conservatism to some degree. I mean, the populist comes first. The populism is the energy that basically propels the movement to um to be uh, want to say highly effective, um highly influential in the world of um in the world of American politics. But but when you look at um the forty five year Cold War, and when it was over. The West, led by the United States, had won. I mean, no doubt about it. The The Soviet Union collapsed. I mean, the Soviet Empire was no longer there. China was kind of our um, uh, de facto ally at the end of the Cold War. They appeared, once again, to be moving ahead or forging forward um, or foregoing. Let's say that they were foregoing some of their communist tendencies in preference to— um, economic growth produced by a more Western uh, economic system. Uh, I don't know how you explain that clearly. I mean, I really don't. I, well, it's hard to really figure well, out I mean, what they are. I still haven't figured it out. Right. I mean, I really haven't. That they have figured out a way to embrace, you know, Western economic activity and hold, you know, the, the country as a communist empire. I mean, it still has a, you know, she's a dictator. He's a totalitarian uh, he calls all the shots and everybody does what G says do, along with his other cronies in in that communist country. but but they they, they appeared to be relaxing. Here you go, better way to say it, you ready? The relaxation of state control over economic forces. It appeared that they were more willing to say, we're going to be communist, but we'll relax some of the state control of the economy and economic activities. Trade with the West is really what this was all about. Now, we can go into slave labor and child labor and all these other sorts of things to inhumane um, the human atrocities in China, uh, the Uyghurs. And, uh, yeah, anyway, that, that's a story for another day. But, but the element of hubris, in my humble opinion, um, is what has led us here. We, we've lived since 1991 with no serious challenger and i think that's led to apathy and i think the unipolar moment of uh, uh, and i think the policies i think the policies have been very interventionist we, uh, do you think george hw bush let's let's i mean the end of the cold war reagan leaves office and win 90. the soviet union collapses in 91 or it dissolves in 91 it collapsed before then but it dissolves in 91 who was the president george hw bush Was will see a globalist or a um, a nationalist he's global and he's followed by bill clinton Is Clinton a globalist or a nationalist? Globalist. He's followed by George W. Bush. Is he a globalist or a nationalist? You know he's followed by Barack Obama. Is he a globalist or a nationalist? So the entire time since the end of the Cold War, we've been governed by high-minded internationalists. I'm using Gene Kirkpatrick's uh, phrase here: globalist. And then Trump gets elected. Now we know that Trump is different. the The sentiment of the voters are different today. They believe that we have expanded further than we probably should have. We prioritize um, our international obligations over our national obligations. And we're kind of, um, that's where we are today. I mean, we're having this fundamental debate about what our involvement should be in foreign places around the world. And it gets real complicated. And I go back to what Jean Kirkpatrick said in the national interest in 1991, because to me, this is very revealing when she said that we should become a normal country. We should not get caught up in this this mystical mission, the pursuit of um, exporting democracy, democratizing uh, the rest of the world. That's not our responsibility. That's not our obligation. Uh, and leave that mystical mission alone. And let's let's look at the Constitution and what what it says about protecting na- our national um, security interest. Um, and specifically, she said that the United States should um, should not devote itself to establishing democracies around the world and basically deride the notion of the high-minded internationalists. I, I just think that's so well said, the high-minded internationalists. Um, I mean, Obama says we're citizens of the world. The Bushes didn't say that, but they pretty much did. And I just think, I mean, Scott and I were talking before we left the studio there, there are a lot of academics who have written about imperialistic nations. And their their, their ambitions of imperialism are normally what forces their demise. And, and I'm afraid, you know, the, the question I was going to pose earlier this morning, are we still a superpower? If we are, are we a superpower in decline? I would say yes to both. If we are a superpower in decline, what is the main contributor to that? Degree of decline, and I think it's our imperialism. But I think it is the the high minded internationalists and our burning desire to export democracy, to police the world, to um, to to I don't know, to create a, a utopian society that depends on Western, uh, the, not just the Western world, but the United States of America as a security mechanism and component. And we have limits. We have absolute limits, and this goes back to the um to the Lipman Gap. I think we're living it today. We're going to approve $861 billion in military spending. Where do we have that money? Where's that money coming from? So, so in the name of intervention, in the name of um, exporting democracy, in the name of policing the world, we're going to spend nearly a trillion dollars more than anybody's ever spent in the history of mankind on a defense budget, and we don't have any money. That's, that's the problem here. We're going, to, we're going to borrow $861 million to fund our military budget. We're going to ask the Fed to purchase the debt. The Fed doesn't have any money, so what is the Fed going to do? They're going to create money out of thin air. They're going to buy, buy that $861 billion that we're going to invest in a single year in our national defense spending. That reeks of internationalism it reeks of globalism it reeks of imperialism and i just i'm deeply concerned and it's a little bit what came first chicken to the egg do we need a a competent military of course we do absolutely we do i would argue we probably have especially by by russia having its issues in in ukraine we're probably more superior militarily than we imagine we are I mean, I don't know about the Chinese. Nobody knows about the Chinese. But we continue to go down this trek of believing it's our responsibility to police the world. And that's imperialism 101. And and I just believe that our nation's commitments and our nation's international desires have completely outpaced our nation's capacity. And we're not willing to admit that this great nation has limited capacities. Unbelievably limited, but limited nonetheless. Let's go to the phone. Trish in Hartsville. Hi, you're on the
2: air.
10: Um, good morning. Uh, thank you for uh, taking my call this morning. I wanted to help my sister uh, Katandi out um, because she seems to have a problem determining whether or not a person is a man or a woman. And so the first thing that I would like to share with her is that um, if you, when you go to the restroom, If you are a wiper or a shaker, if you are a shaker, you are a man. If you were born with an Adam's apple, you are a man. And if you have never been to a gynecologist, you are most definitely a man. I just
0: thought I would share it with your audience today. Thank you, ma'am. There's kind of a, uh, thank you very much. Appreciate that call. There's a very candid definition. Um, And some clues into the
2: investigation as to.
0: I I, I don't perceive her call to be high-minded nor internationalist. (laughs) Fair enough. I mean, that's kind of where the rubber hits the road, or as we like to say, where the oil meets the oil. Um, If you are this, you're that. If you're something else, uh, it's just interesting to me, Uh, you know. And, and I believe this, Rev. I mean, I think a lot of the, the the issues that face our country are much bigger than, you know, whether a Supreme Court can decide if she wants to answer a question about the definition of a man or a woman, definition of woman in this case. But I think that moral rot, I think that, that ambiguity, I think that not being willing to say, no, that's not great. I mean, that's black and white. I mean, there is a man and there is a woman. And there's a clinical definition and a real world definition of either or, and I and I believe this. I think with nine hundred sixty one million dollar billion dollar federal you know uh, defense budget juxtaposed with the feds ability to print money and we're not serious people. I mean I think all of those things contribute, but I think at some point this may be more important than anything. I mean we're going we're, we're the most powerful nation on this planet. We're in decline. Part of our decline is some things I've discussed in the previous segment, but some things are as simple as. A lady that we're nominating to the U.S. Supreme Court that that more than likely will get confirmed was not willing to answer the question, can you define a woman? They didn't say the medical definition of a woman. Can you define what a woman is she chooses to not answer for fear of alienating herself from this bizarre leftist agenda that is so permeating American politics and the dominant strain Within the Democrat Party, we talked a second ago about, you know, capital P, small C, populist conservatism. It's capital C, small P, when Reagan, conservative populism. Um, but th- th- there's always a yin and a yang, a back and a forth within political movements, and, and parties have disagreements internally. But, but we're really going to allow a political party to have a debate about whether we can define a woman or not? And we don't believe that has any consequence at all whatsoever and whether we are in decline or not yeah i mean i'll say it i'm going we are a superpower we are a superpower in decline a lot of our decline is because we felt obligated or responsible or are ambitious is it a responsibility is it an obligation or is it an ambition but I, mean, I think we have a responsibility i think we have somewhat of an obligation i think we took responsibility and an obligation and, and kind of tweaked, turned, and twisted until it became an ambition. And I think the Wolfowitz Doctrine, the Bush Doctrine, the Obama Doctrine, the Clinton Doctrine, anybody post-Reagan, it's been very expansionist in nature. And I think we have failed to understand that despite our nation's power and prowess, it's limited. And we have a distinct imbalance between our nation's commitments and ambitions and our nation's capacity and we've got to get that back in into a proper alignment. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Hey, what have been our uh, what 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 military interventions have we made since the Cold War? I mean, what comes to mind? I mean, Vietnam, Vietnam. is pre-Cold. That's pre-Cold War. I um, mean, the end of the Cold War, I'm oh, talking about the end of you. the Cold War. Yep. Uh okay. post the existence of the Soviet Union, you've got um, Desert Storm. Desert Storm. Uh, that was a success. You're right. That, that's a success. Uh very limited, mm-hmm. right? That's right. I mean, a lot of the interventionists wanted to go to Baghdad. George H. W. Bush, to his credit, said, "That's not the mission here." I mean, the mission is to liberate Kuwait. We liberated Kuwait. That there was a that there was the mindset amongst many, many, many Republican hawks in Washington. Now's the time to take Saddam Hussein down. We knew he was an evil dictator and controlled or influenced a lot of that part of the world. And um, and that was not right by some of our interventionist policymakers. But George H. W. Bush showed. A degree of—I uh, me mean, give him credit. I mean, he showed degree of um, controlling himself, and—and and we didn't do that. But then you've got Afghanistan post 9/11. Uh, yeah, we killed Osama bin Laden, but good land—the the number of years we stayed there, the amount of money we spent there. Then we went to Iraq. We know how that worked out, and—and—and and, and now we're thinking about involving ourselves in to a to some degree the involvement in um in Ukraine. Uh, we just don't have a real good track record as a superpower when it comes to the limits of intervening, the limits of exporting democracy, the limits of Americanizing or democratizing of the rest of the world. Let's go to the phone. Here's
2: Pat in Florence. Good morning, Pat.
11: Good morning, everybody. How good, you doing? Good morning. How are you? I'm good, sir. Just wanted to get your take on something, if you would, changing gears. Going back to the election today, um, I received a text on Friday It says, um, on Tuesday, March 29th, we need you to show up and vote for the candidate, Uh, yada, yada, yada. So um, I don't – that concerns me a little bit because I am not in – district 31 i believe so i don't know if they just sent text to everybody if they just picked phone numbers and sent texts and they asked everybody to show up but to me that's not a real good thing because i know that the last election there's a lot of people that showed up thinking they could vote and then uh were turned away so i think they just need to be real careful there i don't know how they um pick phone numbers um if they just willy nilly just just uh, reach out and try, but um, to me that just gives the wrong information. They're sending me something want me to show up for the polls, but I can't vote because he's not in my district. How do you feel about that?
0: Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. I can just tell you this. I mean, one of the frustrating parts of me running for office was the um, the inefficiencies. And in political campaigns, this is this is I'm I'll give you an exact number. There's about a twelve percent inefficiency rate wrong text number, uh, wrong mailer. Uh, we didn't run the ad exactly when we were supposed to run the ad. Um, you're, you're going to have about 12% of, of whatever it is you do that is not going to be effective at all. It's not going properly managed. I don't have any idea. You may have a phone number uh, of someone. You probably have that phone number a long, long, long time. Um, but there's a multitude of reasons, and, and I've said this before. Um, if you're going into a political campaign believing you can run it like a business and account for every dollar and make sure you get bang for every dollar you invest you'll drive yourself crazy. I mean the 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 voting rolls are inexact. Uh they they purge the rolls to some degree. They 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 call the list of uh potential voters um periodically, but it's still I don't want to say a high degree of uncertainty, but you're going to engage people who can't vote, not engage people that can vote um and they tell me the best thing to do is try to effectively or efficiently spend about 90% of the allocated resources. In other words, if you're spending a hundred thousand dollars to run a campaign, make sure about 90% of that money, which is $90,000 for you folks in Pamplico, make sure that $90,000 of that money touches the real voter in a highly effective way. Um, th- th- there will be random examples over and over. I'm mean, going to, if, if if the last day on Earth is if there's an election being held on the last day on Earth, I'll assure you there'll be about a ten to twelve percent. I mean I've heard it's exactly twelve. You know if if you um if you look at the the money spent and the the voters they engaged, there's about twelve percent of the money you spend either not engaging voters you should or invading uh, engaging voters you should not. And it's, it's kind of an inexact science. It's an abstract art. It's a, um, it's, it's a highly intangible value. The only tangible day in politics is election day. I mean, it really is. That's the only day, you know, my wife would ask me when I ran for office, you have a good day? Don't know. What do you mean you don't know? i told to 5,000 people. I have no idea how many of those 5,000 are going to vote for me. They said they like me. Guess what? I don't win elections based on who says they like me. Or who says they'll do X, Y, or Z? Yeah, sure it is. I mean, you know, I got friends of mine who have run for office and I've I've talked to them in the last week of a campaign or last few days of a campaign. I got this. What do you mean you got this? Everybody I've talked to, Ken, has told me they're going to vote for me. You know what my response always is? Well, they're not. They're not. You're not going to Greg Maddox them. You're not going to shut them (laughs) out. I can assure you of that. There are people out there that you spoke with. said I'm going to vote for you you don't want to hear this but they're not a lot of them aren't for a myriad of reasons they'll vote for somebody else that's just the reality of it so I mean elections and and campaigns are complicated that they're they're moving they're ebbing and flowing no two days are exactly the same and and to the caller's point he gets a text he's not registered to vote somebody in that district didn't get a text that is registered to vote, those 12% just drove me crazy because you can convince yourself it's everybody out there. You're so paranoid on a day like <laughs> today, and you convince yourself that we're sending the text to everybody wrong. I mean, we're sending the text. Oh. Nobody's getting our text, and everybody that is getting it shouldn't be getting it. But but in all honesty, when you do kind of a post-mortem, that number's about 12%. <laughs> Let's go to the phone.
2: Up next is Emerson in Florence. Hello, Emerson.
12: Hey, good morning. How are you guys?
0: Mm-hmm. Good morning.
12: So I had a question about the, uh, I guess, go back to the war with Ukraine and Russia. Um, I know if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. And to me, it just seems like a conversation that we're not having is about the sanctions that are on the Russian people. Um, I mean, do you think that there could be another Hitler 2.0, except this time he's got nukes? I mean, the people to me, you know, when you take away their money, they can't feed their children and their... You know they're scrambling around to try and figure out how to get by in life. It just seems like, to me, it just seems like we're we're repeating at the after effects of World War One with Germany.
11: What are y'all What are y'all thoughts?
0: On Thank that? you, sir. The Second World War with Germany, um, 19 Yeah, the late 30s and early 40s. I don't have any idea uh, when it comes to Hitler. I I can't make a comparison. I mean, I've got a couple of Jewish friends who do, and I understand it. I mean, I understand the, the historical nature of the Holocaust and, you know, uh, the, the final solution. I mean, certainly I'd be more aware and paranoid if I were Jewish. I'm not, but I'm still very uh, paranoid and aware. I don't have any idea what the likelihood or not of Putin uh, becoming the second Hitler. I mean, Hitler gave a lot of interventionists a reason to say we must do this or we must do that, um, how many Hitlers have there been? I mean, Hitler's our modern day, you know, guy who tries to take over the world. I mean, history's full of those kind of people. I mean, we've had multiple examples of of someone trying to use their political and economic power in a certain circumstance or situation, a certain, a certain snapshot in time where world dominance is there. I mean, I don't know that it was driven by—well, I mean, some of it's been driven by the genocide and the exterminating of a human race, uh, the, the 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 Aryan race, you know, the— um the uh, this with this warped belief that hitler had about what the world should look like um and it inspired a you know s- a certain population within germany my problem with sanctions has always been this let's say that the sanctions have led to the confiscating of multi-million dollar yachts from the russian oligarchs who have gained favor with the putin administration let's assume that's true let's assume that um around the world there have been a hundred you know, multi-million-dollar yachts confiscated uh, by, by the French government and the German government and the American government and the Canadian government, are they, are they still not able to buy food and fuel? I mean, are they still not able to live their lives in some sense of normalcy? Yeah, they've lost their multimillion-dollar yacht. That's a big deal to them. But the Russian people are being adversely affected by these sanctions to the point of not having potentially food to eat or the ukrainians i mean the the same things happening in ukraine and in russia and i've always wondered about sanctions i mean i understand the sanctions um denying the ruble to participate in economic international transactions i mean i get that um but but when, when we sanction a nation and we starve it for supplies we starve it for for necessities do you really believe putin's hungry today do you really believe that Putin is financially disadvantaged today? Maybe disadvantaged, but not anywhere near disabled. I mean, Putin is still an unbelievably wealthy man because he's fleeced the nation of Russia. So, so the Russian people are paying the hardest price when it comes to economic sanctions. Um, they've lived what I would argue is a fairly miserable existence up until now anyway because of Putin's rule and the totalitarian um, nature of his regime. But... But when we sanction, we, we, we prohibit those people from being able uh, to live any sort of normal life. That's why I've always felt that the only way to deal with someone like Hitler, someone—I don't want to compare who. I, mean, I don't have any idea if there's a legitimate comparison there or not. Once again, several Jewish friends of mine believe there is, and they have a high degree of—I guess the word would be paranoia— uh, in the historical, historical context about what could and what might be. I just think Hitler has given a lot of interventionist Remember the other day we talked, or maybe yesterday, when we talked about the barbershop scene and coming to America, when you talk boxing, somebody was in there talking about Mike Tyson earlier today, talking about the greatest boxer that ever lived, and someone brought up the name Rocky Marciano, and one of the, uh, one of the Eddie Murphy characters or Arsenio Hall characters said, that's their guy? You can't talk boxing with a white man without them bringing up Rocky Marciano. That's their guy. I mean, he was the undefeated world champion. I uh, beat Joe Lewis, but but you can't talk about you know a dictatorship gone rogue invading a sovereign nation without thinking. I mean, rightfully we should be thinking about Adolf Hitler and the uh, the Nazi Germany, uh, the Holocaust, and the the final. I mean, all those things come into play. But but I I can't give you a comparison. I mean, I'm not historically knowledgeable enough, nor am I an insider enough. I'm not a a foreign policy diplomat. I read a lot. I mean, I've read more about this than you care to imagine. Um, I think I understand the nature of Ukraine. I don't understand the intricacies of Ukraine, but I think I understand the macro, the thirty five thousand foot. Um, I have a um, a little better than elementary understanding of Ukraine and and what its people aspire for, and what they want to be, and how they want to be positioned moving forward. But when it comes to Putin and and Hitler, or, or Osama bin Laden and Hitler, or, you know, Saddam Hussein and Hitler, I don't have any idea. I mean, evil comes in a lot of varieties. Evil comes in a lot of sorts. Um, if you imagine a dictionary that had to put a picture beside the word evil, it would be the devil Charles Manson or Adolf Hitler, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I can't I mean, you've seen, um, this is pretty crazy to say, you've seen kid books that that caricature the devil as kind of red with horns and a long tail. I mean, I guess that epitomizes evil if you believe in the, the, the constant struggle of humanity, good versus evil. You know, God is good, the devil is evil. But but I think human the human carnation of evil, I mean, to me personally, it's two people. It's Charles Manson and it's Adolf Hitler probably Adolf Hitler and Charles Manson uh because Hitler wow I mean the the, the I mean not it's not crimes against humankind I mean it's just the evil perpetrated against fellow man is mind-boggling but once again some of you may have a better historical understanding of the comparisons and contrast of Putin and Hitler I simply do not and I've been um I've been real careful throughout my political life to compare anything to the Holocaust or Adolf Hitler. I mean, a lot of people do this to provoke, to get a rise, to sensationalize, um, and some sometimes it may be somewhat accurate. I just, I kind of let that be. So when someone says, could this be the next Hitler? I guess it could. I just choose to not go down that road because I honestly don't know how to go down that road. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843 6610937. The biggest news that we've not gotten to is the old dreaded inversion of the yield curve. Anytime you hear the inversion of the yield yeah, curve. It's not good news. That's not good news at all. It n- normally predicts a, um, a recession, and all it is is short term debt has higher yields than long term debt. Uh, some academics use the. Um, the 10-year and the 90-day, tre- three-month treasury, others use the 10-year and the two-year bond and yesterday for a brief period. Now, that's not the greatest predictor of a recession, but if it stays that way for an extended period of time, it's almost always the case that a recession soon follows. So, yeah, yesterday the yield curve inverted for the first time mm. since 2006, and short-term debt had higher yields than long-term Debt,
2: yikes! More good news. Let's go to the phone. Here's David in the PD. Hello, David.
12: Hey, good morning. Hey, Ken. Uh, Mike Tyson. One thing about Mike Tyson, he bites. About a man's ear off. That's one thing about my man. He'll bite you. And you talk about a picture. I mean, a definition of a woman. Picture in a dictionary. I think a Salma Hayek. And you know the great thing about her, she could have been in high school with us, man. This woman is 55 years old. I'm like, wow. And you're talking about uh, Desert Storm. One thing about that, that was the ability to showcase to the USSR and Russia what these Abram tanks and what these Apaches and what these smart bombs could do. So that that, that that showcased our military. They didn't want to mess with us after that. Unfortunately, we took advantage of that that shock and awe, even of that war, but you're talking about college. And I always think about Ross Perot when you were talking about Bush and, and Clinton, here's a guy, he went to, he was, he went to Naval Academy, worked for IBM, Fortune 500. He started his own business. That used to be what you wanted to do as, as a young man. And that was before the pre-student loan industry, uh, and then you had to earn your way into college back in the day. You either got a grant, or you got a scholarship, or you had to earn your parents' trust. But this whole pre—I mean, this whole student loan industry that's backstopped by the government—you've got all these people going into all these weird sociology and this and that, and and, and that's where we've ended up. I mean, I hate to say that, but that's where we've ended up. Thank you, thank you,
0: David. Appreciate it. If if the debt matters, and maybe it doesn't. I mean, may, maybe modern monetary theory is not a theory, but rather a applicable economic strategy. I mean, it may indeed be. I mean, a lot of these are theories. What is a theory, Rev? What is Darwin's theory of evolution? You know what the theory insinuates to me? Not real sure. It's an
2: idea. Yeah, it's it's an
0: idea. I mean, it, we, we've got some um, we got some foundational principles here. We got some underpinning, but it's still a theory. I mean, Darwin's theory of evolution is still just that. I mean, it's never proved that that it's exact and it's right. Um, I believe in evolution to some degree. I mean, I think men evolve. I think women evolve. I think animals evolve. I think nature um, forces certain species of animals to evolve. Um, Why is a giraffe's neck longer today than it was before? Maybe, just maybe. uh, The past 100,000 years, they've had to reach a little higher. I mean, I, I don't know any of that. But it's still a theory. So all these things that that are being pronounced by the left as true and indisputable are are nothing but theories. Is climate change a reality or a theory? I mean, climate change is a reality. We know the climate is changing. Man-made climate change is a theory. I have a theory that that by man-emitting CO2, it's changing or affecting or impacting the climate of the planet Earth. Okay? I have a theory that it's not. When does your theory say we are, we all burned to a crisp? Uh, Twenty years? My theory says two million years. I mean, we we when, when someone of credibility, I've often said, when someone who looks the part and wears a nice suit and is able to speak and write real well, they become someone not theorizing but pontificating on the truth and gospel. And and all of these all of these insinuations are nothing more than theorizing. What was Thomas Jefferson? Thomas Jefferson's most famous skill was a political theorist. I mean, Jefferson was an inventor. He was a writer. He was a, I mean, he was a founding father. But Jefferson's biggest contribution to mankind was theorizing about self-governance. Now, now John Locke inspired, and what was Locke? Locke was a, a guy who theorized. I mean, all, all of these things that just because someone wears an nice suit and went to Harvard or Yale doesn't mean that they have these things figured out. They're able to express themselves and articulate themselves a little better than the masses, but they're still offering up theories. I mean, the theory is a fancy way of saying opinion. It's a little bit like Peter Thiel. They asked Peter Thiel. He said, I was eclectic when I got rich. Up until then, I was just weird. <laughs> Take a break. Back in a minute. Right, this is about a wrap. Once again, the most um, the most interesting news of the day. We contacted the Oscars, and they have confirmed that Mike Tyson will indeed be the host next year. Rev preferred The Rock. They decided The Rock play fights. Mike Tyson really fights. So next year, as a precautionary measure, Mike Tyson will be on the stage host of the Oscars. So if somebody wants to break bad, have at it. <laughs> proceed at your own yeah. risk. Yeah. Uh, proceed with caution is what I would advise. But don't knock you you bite your ear off. We'll talk tomorrow. <laughs>